foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua. Yeshua. The rock of our salvation on Solace Radio. We're seeking the Lord for a message last Sunday, because that's what I do on Sunday mornings very early. He said Thanksgiving, and I couldn't believe it, because I'm, I tend to, you know, I tend to not preach on Mother's Day, the Saturday before Mother's Day, or Father's Day, the Sunday before, well, thanks. I just don't do that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it by no means. Just, you know, we do everything so different here. I just don't usually flow like that. And when he said Thanksgiving, I was kind of shocked. But let me tell you, it's going to take a different route, okay? So just follow me. Just to give you a little history, a little history, brief. Thanksgiving, obviously, is a national holiday, but I don't think people realize that it's just celebrated in the United States and Canada. Um, it's, it's just a day of giving thanks um, after the harvest. Um, its, its root is in English tradition. And it dates back since the Protestant Reformation. Just so you know, in, right before 1536, there were 95 church holidays. 95 on the books. Along with 52 Sundays where people were required to attend church. Okay? Since the 1536 Protestant reforms, that reduced the number of church holidays to 27. However, many Puritans wished to completely eliminate all church holidays including the top two, Christmas and Easter, because the Puritans knew that their origins were not biblical. In 1621, the first American Thanksgiving was a three-day festival. 1789, President George Washington announced the first Thanksgiving holiday. And then in 1863, President Abraham Lincoln declared Thanksgiving Day a national holiday in the United States. Interestingly enough, guys, Thanksgiving was a little different among the separatists who weren't Puritans. They were more pure than the Puritans, if you will, and they were very, very biblically based. It was a three-day festival, um, and in actuality, it was rooted in the Feast of Sukkot. Now, just to, just to put this in there, they were giving thanks for the final harvest, which is what Sukkot is, and they were also praying for future provision, which is what Sukkot is. Now, we know there was no pumpkin pie, we know there was no turkey, and we know there was no sweet potatoes, but there was a dish called Sukkotesh. So if you're ever wondering where its origin was, wonder no more. Um, let me show you Thanksgiving just in three different languages. Um, I speak three languages, um, English, Hebrew, and sarcasm, but I'll show it to you. I'll show it to you in the Hebrew dictionary. It's todah. You'll hear that word. People will throw it around, todah, todah. And it, it means giving praise to God. But if you look into the connotation it's showing extreme appreciation. It's not just, hey, thanks, man. Hey, thanks so much. Even, even as thankful as I am of these people, I'm talking about taking it to another level when it comes to thanking God. The Greek, just so you know, Eucharista, where we get the word Eucharist from, um, it's the giving of thanks, and that means showing intense gratitude. So basically, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, if you're talking about the Bible, the word has the same connotation. In the English dictionary, Thanksgiving is the act of giving thanks, but especially to God. So in reality, all three languages are in agreement. Now let me just show you just a couple of verses in the Psalms, just a few, because the Psalms, is a, you know, the Psalms constantly think about, talk about thanks, right? Um, Psalm 50, 23, and I say A because it's just the first part of the verse. It says, whoever offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice honors me. This is God speaking. This is God speaking. So let's look up that word honor, if you will. And it's Chabad, not the Orthodox sect. That's an acronym. Chabad means to be heavy or to be weighty. 
So basically, weightiness declares God's glory. That's where this word comes from. Remember when Solomon um, dedicated the temple? Remember the priests couldn't speak? They all hit the ground? Because why? God's kabod came into the temple. And when God's kabod comes into the temple, things get very heavy. And so what do we do? We bend the knee and bow and acknowledge our thanks before the king over kings, the holy one, blessed be. Get it? Thanking God honors him. If you want to honor your heavenly father, be thankful. And just to put this in there, when you don't thank him, you're dishonoring. Look at Psalm 69, verses 30 to 31. It says, I will praise God's name with a song. Extol him with thanksgiving. This will please Adonai more than a bull with its horns and hoofs. The word please is your job. In Hebrew, it means to be pleasing or to be good. I'm telling you that when you thank God, it makes God happier than the costliest of sacrifice. When I would ask my mom when I was a little boy, what do you want for Mother's Day? She would say, just love and respect. That's all I want, son. You can't give God a gift. Uh, secondarily, he's never asked. God has never asked you to pay him back except by thanking him. Psalm 100, verse 4, which we read this morning, enter his gates with thanksgiving, enter his courtyards with praise, give thanks to him, and bless his name. Gates, Sha'ar, in the Hebrew, it's a gate of entrance, but it's also in Hebrew a gate of a palace or a castle or a temple. The way to come into God's presence is through thankfulness. If there was a security lock on the gate, the username would be Greg Hirschberg. The password would be, thank you, Lord, thank you. And then the gate opens. Psalm 95, 1 through 2 says, Come, let's sing to Adonai. Let's shout for joy to the rock of our salvation. Let's come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let's shout for joy to him with songs of praise. Again, the word is todah. It's a confession. Declare it. Declare it. Praise him. Extol him. Magnify him. Make him big. You, you, it's coming into his presence, thanking him for all that he has done for us. We're to sing and shout with thanksgiving. And you might say, well, well, why? Look at the very next verse in Psalm 95. Verse 3, it says, this is why. For Adonai is a great God, a great king, greater than all the gods. Now look up this word great and gadol, like the Kohen Hagadol. But I put this in there because I want you to understand the connotation. The definition is just great, but it has the connotation of greater and greatest. In other words, he is the great God, the greatest God, the omnipotent one. He's a great king, the greatest king, and he's high above all the idolatrous gods and kings of this unbelieving world. There are many things that we can be thankful for. I don't know if you've ever tried to make a list, but try this one night or one day when you have nothing better to do. Find a hundred things. Find a hundred things to be thankful for. I've done it many times. A, a top ten list might look something like this. Number one, for families that raised us. I can even tell you, I know that not everybody has had the perfect family. I was very blessed to have a really good mom and dad. However, even if you didn't have the perfect parent, and just let it be known, you're not the perfect parent either, um, maybe they showed you what not to do. Maybe they gave you an example of that's time to break the curse. Every cloud has a silver lining. Uh, two, what about the families we have? I know Mama Cat is happy. The Cubs are coming home this week. And nothing makes you happier than when, you know, I don't know the last time all my four was sitting around the table. What about for friends? I mean, the friendships that have developed here are uncanny. I mean, most people have met their best friends at Beth Yeshua. 
What about for a roof over our heads? I know a lot of times we don't come into our house and be thankful, but I guess what I've seen, I am always thankful for my home. It's palatial, basic, but palatial nevertheless. What about laughter? You ever just thank God for laughter? What about a job? For some of you young people, that's where you get up really early in the morning, before 10 o'clock. And you go to a place, and that place has an employer. That's somebody who tells you what to do when you do it. And at the end of the week, you get what's called a paycheck. It's really neat. I think that's one way to have a stimulus. How about working? The old-fashioned stimulus. They actually work. Going down the tubes, man. Going down the tubes. Um, Another one, what about the freedoms we have? I mean, we forget so many people malign this country. Um, Two words. Go back. I've been to your countries. I've had guns pulled on me on a regular basis by officials, by cops. It's so corrupt. It's so horrific. My friends have such a horrible time living in India and Africa. It's so, so difficult. We're crazy blessed here. Just to be able to say you're not and not get incarcerated is pretty amazing. Eight, what about all the people who made a positive impact in your life? I mean, I ran with a very bad crowd, and in sixth grade, this teacher, Mr. Abenanti, pulled me after class and said, I see myself in you. You're going down the tubes. I'm not going to let that happen. My whole trajectory in life changed. Total change because of this one man that stepped in. What about nourishment? I don't see anybody lacking that today. I've been to places where they don't eat or drink so their kids could have a little milk for four and five days. And last but not least, our health. It's, it's a good list, and I'm sure you can come up with your own. But for me, I'm thinking as a believer. I'm a believer. You're a believer. That's who I am. I'm not a rabbi. I'm, I'm a believer. And when I think about what we as believers should be most thankful for, it's a no-brainer. I, I wouldn't go a day without it. I mean, to me, Thanksgiving is the believer's daily holiday, not once a year. Every day, we should celebrate Thanksgiving. And I just want you to read, I want to read to you a parable that Yeshua taught. Now, most Bibles, just about all Bibles, when they title the parables, they will title this parable, The Unmerciful Servant. I think it's a lousy title. I title the parable, The Merciful Master. And let's read from Matthew 18. You could follow along. It says, Kepha came up and said to him, Rabbi, how often can my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? As many as seven times? No, not seven times, answered Yeshua, but 70 times seven. Because of this, the kingdom of heaven may be compared with a king who decided to settle accounts with his deputies. Right away they brought forward a man who owed him many millions. And since he couldn't pay, his master ordered that he, his wife, his children, and all his possessions be sold to pay the debt. But the servant fell down before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. So out of pity for him, the master let him go and forgave the debt. But as that servant was leaving, he came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him some tiny sum. He grabbed him and began to choke him, crying, Pay back what you owe me. His fellow servant fell before him and begged, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he had him thrown in jail until he should repay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were extremely distressed, and they went and told their master everything that had taken place. Then the master summoned his servant and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt just because you begged me to do it. Shouldn't you have had pity on your fellow servant 
just as I had pity on you. And in his anger, his master turned him over to the jailers for punishment until he paid back everything he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat you unless you each forgive your brother from your hearts. Now, I can tell you that when Yeshua taught, it was simplistically, and if there was a theologian in the crowd or a kindergartner, they would understand. We have made a mistake allowing the intelligentsia to infiltrate the spiritual realm. Well, as we always do, I think this, the parable speaks for itself, but I would like to break it down for you a little bit. Matthew eighteen twenty one. Kepha came up and said to him, Rabbi, how often can my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? As many as seven times? Um, Kepha was an interesting guy. Obviously, he was somewhat of a tough guy, a little bit of a hothead, a little spontaneous. Um, he spoke sometimes too soon. And like any human being, they were trying to impress their teacher. And so he's trying to impress him. I think he's trying to impress him by saying seven times as an outside limit because if you're familiar with the Bible, then you'll be familiar with Job. And if you look into chapter 33, verses 29-30, Elihu was speaking to Job, and he says that the Lord will redeem from the pit twice, even three times. So Peter's upping it. He's upping the ante. He has no intentions of forgiving anybody seven times. The reason why he asked him that is because Yeshua is teaching about forgiveness. He's teaching who he is in this chapter. He's teaching about binding and loosing, and he's asking him, Do I have to forgive him seven times? Obviously, somebody is annoying Peter. And so we look at the next verse, and Yeshua answers, no, not seven times. And I'm sure Peter's thinking, great, you know, maybe it's two times, because I forgave this guy three times, so we're done. He says, no, 70 times seven. Obviously, this isn't a literal number. It's not 490 times that you have to forgive somebody. Um, But I can see why somebody reading the Bible who's not studied would understand, would look at it that way. It's figurative. There's a lot of figurative language in the Bible. You know, I know that we're supposed to take a a literal approach. That's part of hermeneutics. But there are times when things are figurative. There are times when there's simile. And there's times when there are metaphors and mixed metaphors. And it's figurative symbolic language. This is figurative. Because if you knew about um, Hebraic understanding, it's expressing times without number. Times without number. Indefinitely. This is what Yeshua is telling us. Indefinitely. A very tall order. The next verse, because of this, now he goes into a parable. Okay? Um, it's it's a, an earthly story with a heavenly message. He says, because of this, the kingdom of heaven may be compared with a king. He's, he's teaching about the kingdom. Now, these guys are not born again yet, but we are. So we belong to this kingdom. So this is teaching for us. This is the way we should conduct ourselves. When we were delivered from the kingdom of darkness, and brought into this kingdom of light, this kingdom of light has a whole new set of rules, a whole new policies and procedures. That's the way it is. We can't just take the reward of salvation without the responsibility of conducting ourselves in the kingdom. And this is just one of his teachings, of many. But it's a beautiful teaching, nevertheless, because I think this is the crux of the kingdom. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared with a king who decided to settle accounts. Now, I read the complete Jewish Bible. Most of the time, it's incredible. I just don't like the deputies. I just don't like that. I think he just used a bad term there. I think he was trying to use a different term than servants. But it's a servant, make no mistake. A kingdom, you know, has a few things. The kingdom has a king. It has servants. It has policies and procedures. I mean, we're we're the servants. There can only be one king. 
So he tells this parable, and he warns them. It's a parable with a warning, and the warning is against the consequences of an unforgiving spirit by subjects who have been freely forgiven. Let's look at the next couple of verses, 24 and 25 of Matthew 18. It says, right away, they brought forward a man who owed him many millions. And since he couldn't pay, his master ordered that he, his wife, his children, and all his possessions be sold to pay off the debt. Obviously, this king, he's telling a story, has all these debts on his books. People owe him a lot of money. And he wants to clear some of the debts, get them off his books. The debt is obviously a huge sum of money. And it's based really on biblical weights and measures, and I'll get to that. But when I did the math, the debt is equivalent to 500 tons or 200 full-grown elephants of debt. Yeah, perspective is important. That's why I want to give you some. His family was ordered to be sold into slavery. And the Torah does state, the Bible does state, that a Hebrew could become a slave in order to pay off his debt. Look at Exodus 21. Now, slavery is not, a biblical slavery is not like the slavery that the Jews experienced or the Africans experienced, okay? If you owe somebody money, you, you say, well, I can't pay it. They can say, can you mow a lawn? Do you know how to wash a car? How about cooking for my family? You could pay your debt off. And if you couldn't pay your, you know, that's, but if you did have somebody live with you that was enslaved to you and your children got a new bed, they got a new bed. What your children ate, they ate. You see how different? Yeah. Well, obviously, this guy couldn't pay off this debt. It was just too much. So let's take a look at the next couple of verses, 26, 27. So the servant falls down before him, and he begs him. He's pleading, be patient with me. I'll pay you back everything. He's thinking that he can actually pay the debt, which is, which is interesting, really, because you'll see there's no way he could have. The master let him go and forgave the debt. So just so you know, there was no way this guy could pay this debt off. And I'll get to that in a minute. First of all, he's insolvent. Solvent is a, an accounting term that means he's broke. And I mean broke, not a nickel to his name. So what does he do? He runs up his credit cards and claims bankruptcy. No, he doesn't do that. That's what we do. No, he throws himself at the feet of his master and begs for mercy. The master was, was obviously moved. He saw the sincerity and the legitimacy of the servant's extreme humble remorse. So he forgave him. Next, verses 28 through 30, it says, But as the servant was leaving, he came upon one of his fellow servants. This is the crux of your faith. This parable is the crux of your faith. If you worship anywhere on Sunday or you worship here on Saturday, you are coming here to thank God that you're forgiven. You're celebrating God's great forgiveness. I promise you, some of you have forgotten that. You've just been forgiven too long. But as that servant was leaving, he came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him a tiny sum. He grabbed him and began to choke him. He was just, this wasn't years later. Pay back what you owe me. His fellow servant fell before him and begged. Same thing, same plea. But he refused. Was, was his mercy legitimate then? Was his remorse really legitimate? How could it have been? If it was really legitimate, he would have forgave his fellow servant. Maybe our thankfulness isn't that legitimate either. I don't know. Maybe we think it's coming to us. I don't know. So this guy who's been forgiven so much runs into his fellow servant, and he owes him just a small sum of money. Instead of forgiving him, he demands his money. Almost done. 31, 34 of Matthew 18, it says, When the other servants saw what happened, they were extremely distressed, and they went and told the master everything that had taken place. 
Then the master summoned his servant and said, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt just because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had pity on your servant just as I had pity on you? This is a catch-22. Our God is brilliant. Brilliant. And in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers for punishment until he paid back everything he owed. He'll never be able to pay him back when he's in jail. He's done. They locked him up and threw away the key. There is no hope for this man. Last verse, 1835, it says, Now, here's the crescendo. This is Yeshua. This is how my heavenly father, Yeshua is speaking. It's his heavenly father too. He said, this is how my heavenly father will treat you. That's you, you, me. Nobody's above the law. Unless you each forgive your brother from your hearts. Not lip service. I've seen that too many times. Oh, I'm okay now. And I know they're not. In fact, they're worse. Because they were expecting something. They wanted the person to apologize so bad, but they didn't. They enjoyed being angry. They enjoyed mutilating them from their hearts. They enjoyed tormenting them in their brain. They couldn't let them go. Like, I'll never let you go. What you did to me, I'll never forgive you. And then they tell their friends, if only they would come to me and ask me for forgiveness. And then they do, and they're enraged. How dare they ask for forgiveness? How dare they think they could be forgiven? Choke them and throw them in jail. They're the same thing. The message is clear, guys. It's so crystal clear. God is the king in this parable. He's the master and all his servants. That's you and I. We owed him a great debt, a great debt that we were unable to pay and in a magnificent display of mercy and grace. And let me just add this for you non-believers or you new believers. You will not understand the mercy and grace of God like you do until you keep going to the cross. That's the maturation of the believer. More and more, more and more. The closer you get to God, the uglier you are in your own eyes. That's a litmus test for the believer as far as maturation is concerned. In a magnificent display of mercy and grace, God the King paid the debt and granted full and free forgiveness to all of us. Let me tell you something, my friend. It's not good enough for you to run around telling everybody how much God forgave them of. Don't you forget while you're preaching what he's forgiven you of. Now, in ver most ver versions, I'm sure some of you don't read the complete Jewish Bible, and I think he took some liberties, but I understand why. The dead is described as talents and denarii, right? It says a man owed 10,000 talents. Um, the question is, can you, can you not put that up? That's, that's my, let me, I just want to explain something to them first because I don't want them to get captivated with math. Math causes a lot of confusion for people. The question I would ask some of these writers is, how much is a talent? If you go by various translations, you'll get confused. For instance, the NIV, which, by the way, I highly recommend you getting rid of that version. They have totally obliterated the book of Revelation. I call it the nearly inflammable version. It's almost, almost on fire, but you should put it on fire. It translates 10,000 talents as 10,000 bags of gold. My question would be, how do you know the talent was a gold talent and not a silver talent? The Living Bible, which even, don't go near that thing. Don't go near that thing. That thing is not living by no means. It says $10 million. The CJB says millions. But clearly the point is, it's a great deal of money. Now, if you want to understand what a talent is, in the Old Testament, the word a talent appears. And you can find it in Exodus when they're building the tabernacle. And it describes how much gold the Israelites would have used. 
It weighed 75 pounds. That's what a gold talent weighed in the Old Testament. But we're in the New Testament, so we can't use the talent in the Old Testament. Secondarily, we don't know, again, if it's a silver talent. We do know from the Greek word talenton, it was a large monetary measurement equal to 6,000 denarii. That we know. That's just Greek and Roman coins of that day. Coin experts know this. We have access to these coins. So it's not easy to put a dollar value on it, but I wanted to give you some perspective. And this is the perspective. Now you can put that screen up. One talent equals 6,000 denarii. So basic math, if I have 10,000 talents, like most of the original versions say, that would be 60 million denarii. So the Bible says that this guy owed 10,000 talents or 60,000 denarii, right? Then he goes out and his servant owed him 100 denarii. So he was forgiven 60 million coins, and this guy owed him a hundred. You see the perspective? Let me show you what a denarii looks like, and I'll tell you a little bit about it. A denarii was a standard silver Roman coin in that day, and it was equal to one day's wages. So if you worked a day, you received a denarii. So the man who owed a hundred denarii would have to work a hundred days to pay off his debt. Or if you go by a five-day work week, which they didn't, they do a seven-day work week, he'd have to work 20 weeks to pay off his debt. The man who owed 10,000 talents or 60 million denarii would have to work 60 million days or 200,000 years. You see why Yeshua uses hyperbole to drive home a point. He's not using exaggeration to manipulate. He's using hyperbole to send a powerful, crystal clear message. And the message is abundantly clear for all of us. God has forgiven us a massive, massive, massive debt. And we won't forgive our brother a pittance. But praise the Lord. Let me tell you why some people work so hard for God. Because they can't do what's basic, and that's forgive others. So they think they're going to neutralize or abrogate the need to forgive by doing for God. Suppose a believing brother wrongs another believing brother, and he apologizes legitimately. He says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry, and asks for forgiveness. But the offended brother refuses to forgive him. Will the king allow such behavior to go unpunished? The answer is no. That was the last verse of this parable. No. Didn't you ever read in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, if you come before God with a gift, and there you realize you have a brother that has something against you because you didn't forgive him, God will not receive your worship. You have to leave the gift and make amends. Rabbi, this is too tough. I never told you that being a believer was easy. It's very tough being a believer. It's the toughest thing I've ever done. So what will happen to us? Will we lose our salvation? No, it's not an issue of salvation. And once I say that, people are like, then I'm good. You're not good. That's all you care about is your dang salvation. God didn't just come in human form, despicably nursed by a little teenage Jewish girl and had his diaper changed so you could just go to heaven. The unforgiving brother will be chastised in this life and at the judgment seat of Messiah. All your good deeds won't mean anything at that point. He will say to you exactly what the parable said. I forgave you so much and you choked your brother over a pittance. And what are you going to say then? Lord, you don't know what it is to be betrayed. Yeshua, you, you don't understand. God, why didn't you come down here and live a life like we lived and see what it's like to have your friends betray you? 
Hear me. I will never minimize your pain or belittle your scars. Never. Never, ever. I can't begin to tell you how many stories I've heard from you guys over the years. Horrible stories. Horrific stories. I just heard one the other day. Just can't believe what this young lady went through. Can't believe it. It's, it's like a, a horror show. I am sorry. I wish it never happened. But no matter how you slice it or dice it, unforgiveness perpetuates the pain. Now, I'm not referring to horrific things that happened to a child. I'm talking about when another believer said something to your kid like, stop running, and now you don't want to talk to them anymore. It's deplorable. There's no excuse for it. Unforgiveness is like an invisible umbilical cord that feeds the unforgiver from the past with constant anger and bitterness and malice and hurt and torment. The only thing that could cut the cord is forgiveness. Forgiveness is a choice. It's a definite act of the will. As I mentioned before, it is not easy by no means, especially when the sin that was perpetrated was awful and unprovoked. But it is a choice nevertheless. I'd like to do a little exercise together that I don't think was my idea because it was definitely not my idea to even be here doing what I'm doing. I'm going to ask some of the Shamashim and ushers to hand you all out a 3 by 5 index card, a pen, and a spike. You don't have to do this exercise. Not at all. Don't feel any obligation. I mean that. I don't want to put you on the spot and make you uncomfortable. I am just think I'm following orders, so forgive me in advance. I'd like you to maybe write down one hurt that you're struggling to let go of. That could be a person's name. You could write uncle. doesn't matter. doesn't have to be elaborate. God knows. So you'll write that down on the card, and then I'll ask you to fold that index card with the hurt and put it in your left hand. How are we doing, guys? Let's, let's try to speed up the process a little bit. Just tell them what they need to do. Grab one and, and pass it down the line. And I leaned into Bernadette. It had nothing to do with the message. And I just said, you know, how happy are you? We, it wasn't like this years ago. I know if you knew and you see us now, you think, wow, they got the world by a string. Um, yeah, it's not like that. We were pretty much under duress constantly. It was like we were sleeping with the enemy. We couldn't believe it. We were just two young, excited people to glorify God and to bless everybody. And it just backfired massively. So we, we know what it is. I mean, I'm surprised when I drink water, it doesn't come out my back. It's how many times I've been stabbed. But with that being said, you know, the cross has been my salvation. Every time I didn't want to go back into the, into, into the water, I remember I, I, I met your dad, and uh, Mike's dad was a retired uh, Assembly of God pastor 47 years and built up churches and moved on and built up churches and moved on. And, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't ever home because he had a deacon's meeting and a finance meeting every night. And his mother was the church secretary. And they gave their whole life to it. Now he's out to pasture, you know? You know how that works. And so he came to visit me because he was very impressed with what was going on here. And he had been praying for his son for a long time. We became good friends. He came in the office and he prayed over me. He started to cry. Prayed in the spirit. It was pretty neat. But he's a very mild-mannered man. And I said, Mr. Harris, he came to me at a rough time. I said, did, did you ever feel like quitting? And he started to laugh only the way he does. And I said, what's so funny? He goes, I thought about quitting every week. Every week. It's, a it's tough. Life sometimes is tough. You know, you have friends that you just pour your heart and soul into. You give them everything. You hold nothing back. And then somehow it goes sideways. I mean, don't you ever wonder a marriage sometimes? You get married. You're in love. 
You dated. You courted. You got engaged. You went on a beautiful honeymoon. You got this album. How did, how did you start to hate each other? How does that happen? How did you get there? I wonder with some of my friends, how did this happen? And it was because of unforgiveness. That's how it happened. And that's what Satan loves more than anything. So if you can write down something on the card, if you're willing, and then also I gave you a spike nail, I'd like you to fold the card and put it in your left hand, and I'd like you to put the spike nail in your right hand. Maybe if you could um, do it something like this, put maybe the sharp part in your palm and just hold on to it. Maybe press a little bit. And then I'm going to ask you a question, and then at the end of service, right before we depart, I'm supposed to pick up the card so you can either drop them off here if you want to, or drop them off with the shamashim as you're exiting the, the uh, sanctuary, and I have to go somewhere and pray over them, release them to God, and burn them. I don't know what's going to come out of it, because that's not my department. My department is just to do as I'm told and leave the rest to God. If I was to ask you, if you had to let go of one of those things, either the hurt or the nail, which one would it be? Would you let go of the crime, or would you let go of the cross? You know I speak about the cross a lot. Jewish guys like, wow, he really speaks about the cross a lot. Um, one, because the cross is everything. God has never asked us to pay him back. I know we're constantly trying to. Well, I'm doing this for you, God. I'm doing this for you, God. First of all, when we do things for God, we get much more out of it than we give. So we're not doing it for God. We're really doing it kind of for us. And God's okay with that because he wants us to be blessed. That king did not ask that servant to pay him back. He said he forgave his debt. He didn't reduce it. He didn't say, I'll tell you what, if you do this, this, and this, I'll forgive it. He forgave it completely. What did he expect him to do? Not pay him back, but pay him forward. Could you imagine if the body of Messiah conducted themselves the way Messiah wants us to? Can you imagine if we actually forgave each other? From our hearts. From our hearts. Everybody has an index card and already? Okay, if you can fold it, I'm going to literally ask you to let go of one of them. Close your eyes and drop one. Because I think God is saying to us, I have forgiven you of so much, and all I'm asking you is to pay it forward. Why won't you forgive your brother? I hope and pray that this will be a thanksgiving for all of us, not just turkey and sweet potato and maybe for those who watch football. I hope it's going to be a thanksgiving where we hold on to the cross in one hand, forgiveness in the other. I wish you all a really happy Thanksgiving and Shabbat Shalom. Let's stand together. Just as a reminder, we do have refreshments and some desserts inside Michalocha. By all means, you're all invited. What's what's? I'm sorry, I can't hear. We're not. Oh, I had said, are we done? And nobody said no. Um, if we could, if we could do the uh, ministry leads again, and we could remove the shamashim for the category. I, I guess somebody didn't get the index cards, but I did. I did ask, did everybody get the cards? And nobody said no. How come? Because I was in a hurry? Well, um, I'm going to say the blessing, and then when you do get your card, you can still fill it out. It's not a violation. Okay? You can still hand it to the Shamashim and bring it up here. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, give you his peace, in the name of the principal of peace, Yeshua. Yeshua.
Shalom. Shabbat shalom, guys. On the cutting edge of the Messianic movement, Solace Radio will rock your faith and bring the Bible alive. Find your Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach and explore the whole Bible and discover treasures there. Solace Radio. Revelation chapter 1 is, is where we are. Now, man, who doesn't like the studies of end times? Anybody I know loves the study of prophecy and end times and things that are to come and what has the Lord revealed to us through the pages of Scripture? So this um, is always an exciting time, I think, as we dive into the Bible to see the things that God has told us in advance, well in advance. And as we begin this Bible study together, and it'll be a long study. I mean, there's 22 chapters to Revelation, and uh, if we take one chapter a week, I mean, do the math, that's 22 weeks. So we're talking almost six months, potentially, in the book of Revelation and I think that it's possible that just as we get finished with this on Wednesday nights, by the time we do on Sunday, we'll be back here to Revelation, which means that um, most of you should be able to teach this in about a year. Um, but it's, it's not a complicated book. It really isn't. I always thought it was until you just kind of take it bit by bit and, um, and digest it slowly. So it's another good reason why we should take this slowly. I will tell you that I am going to teach this, and I don't, I don't mean this to sound in, in any kind of a haughty way, but I'm going to teach this definitively. And what I mean by that is uh, I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time saying, now it could mean this or it could mean that or it could mean this and it could mean that, or else we will be here so long, it, Jesus will come before we finish the book, <laughs> which is fine with me. But um, obviously, after having studied this uh, over the years, I have a, a, a personal perspective and a personal viewpoint that, that I'm going to be sharing from. Uh, you are free to study you know, a variety of other interpretations of the book of Revelation. You can go do that on your own. But if I took the time to say, you know, some people think it means this and some people think it means I mean, I might do a little bit of that. But by and large, you're going to hear my personal persuasion, my personal viewpoint, and it's not just mine. I mean, obviously, I'm speaking on behalf of um, what I have gleaned over the years from many uh, brighter and wiser minds than my own. And, and so, obviously, you know, every teacher is going to be sharing from a personal viewpoint or a personal angle. I just challenge you, you know, go do your own homework and, and get out books and, and study guides and lexicons and dig out this book, and you can come to your own conclusion or a similar conclusion, but for the sake of time, I'm, I'm really not going to be juggling a lot of viewpoints. I may refer to that in the course of the study in general, but um, by and large, I'm going to be presenting this, and right off the bat, um, I'll tell you, I'm going to be presenting this from a premillennial, pre-tribulation view. Now, what does that mean? Because we're going to get into the book of Revelation, and we're going to hear terms and terminology that you could choke on. But it's good to understand these things, and, and that's why God's given us his word. Basically, premillennial means that, that um, it's our position here. When I say our, obviously, as the teacher, I'm going to say it's my position here, that, that the church is living prior to the thousand year, the millennial reign of Christ. That hasn't happened yet. And also, we are living and, um, in the church age prior to the tribulation. Tribulation hasn't happened yet. And I believe that we are raptured. Uh, before the tribulation, which is before the millennial period. So some of this will make more, more sense perhaps as we get into it, but those of you who are familiar with those terms of 
post-millennial, pre-millennial, or amillennial. We are pre-millennial, and we are pre-tribulation, rapture of the church, believing that the church gets taken before much of the events that occur, uh, starting particularly in chapter 6. So um, while we are reading here through the book of Revelation, I just kind of wanted to set that framework um, and uh, we'll dive into this study as best as we can and, and take a chapter or two as, as we can. Um, tonight, I might spend as much time giving the introduction as I do actually getting through chapter one, but again, laying the foundation is important for our study. So let's just begin with the word of prayer and then we'll dive into it together tonight. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. And as especially we uh, open up the book of Revelation, we just thank you for just the richness of this book and how it is so full of information and revelation and prophetic things that it's almost overwhelming. But yet you've given us these things that we would have understanding. And so we thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself and, and to reveal these things that are to come in advance, that we might know these things and be prepared for these things. And so, Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for this time together in your word. Reveal yourself in a personal way to each of us tonight. We just thank you for your many blessings and your goodness to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. And everybody said, Amen. So for you note takers, here are a couple of items for you. As far as background on the book goes, the writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is John the Apostle. One of the original twelve that Jesus chose during his public ministry. It was written sometime around 95 AD, and John has this revelation uh, from uh, his location on the island of Patmos, where he has been banished uh, by the emperor Domitian, um, and, uh, and we'll read why he's been banished there. But Patmos is located in the Aegean Sea. It's one of the Greek islands. And uh, Revelation 1 and verse 1 tells us that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that almost seems like not necessary to say, but I've heard some people refer to this book as the revelation of John. It is not the revelation of John. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ given to John. So John receives a revelation, but it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the Greek word for revelation is Apocalypsis, where we get our English word apocalypse. And revelation or apocalypsis just simply means unveiling or a revealing. And what we're going to notice through this book in particular, that it is a revelation or an unveiling, like someone has taken the curtain away and shown us to a greater degree who Jesus Christ is. This is the unveiling of Jesus, so much so that throughout the book of Revelation, there are 32 titles or names given concerning Jesus Christ. 32 different titles or names about Jesus. Now, by the way, as we begin this, this study today, um, what we're going to try to do by the end of the study is to put together a booklet. Or we'll get our graphics department to put together a booklet of the notes and the slides so that you'll have like a study guide to go. Um, I know many of you will come up to me after the service and say, can we get copies of the slides? And what we'll do is we'll package it all together at the end of the study, so you're free to take notes as we go, but um, just wait till the end of the study, and then we'll have a whole packet together. Now, in regards to Jesus being revealed by 32 different titles or names, nine of those names occur here just in the first chapter, just in the first chapter. I'm going to read the list. You can follow along as I read it. He's referred to as the faithful witness, chapter 1, verse 5, the firstborn from the dead, 
Also, verse 5, the ruler over the kings of the earth, verse 5, the alpha and the omega, the Greek, the Greek uh, letters, which are the beginning and the ending of the alphabet, verse 8. He's referred to as the one who is, who was, and who is to come, also in verse 8. He's referred to as the Almighty in verse 8. He's referred to as the Son of Man in verse 13. He's referred to as the first and the last in verse 17. And finally, he's referred to as the Living One in verse 18. Now, a lot of people struggle with the book of Revelation because it seems overwhelming with the information. And there is a verse given to us in chapter 1 that is actually an outline of the entire book of Revelation. So look real quickly at verse 19 here of chapter 1. And notice, these are the words of Jesus. If you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, these are in red. And Jesus says this to John in verse 19. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Well, there's an outline for the entire book of Revelation. And just by way of breaking it down for us, uh, here's, here's how the outline goes. The first thing that Jesus says is write what you have seen. Now, what John has seen is what we're going to read about in chapter 1, which is the appearance of Jesus. That's the have seen part. And then the rest of that verse in verse 19 says, and also write, what is now? What is now is between chapters 2 and 3, what we refer to as the church age. Between chapters 2 and 3, you're going to see the letters to the seven churches, which are seven real churches that were meeting during the first century in what is ancient Asia Minor, modern-day, present-day Turkey. All seven of these churches were located in Turkey. We'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. And so he writes about what you have seen. That's chapter 1, the appearance of Jesus. We'll get into, hopefully, tonight. And then he's to write about what is now relative to the church age, and we are living presently in the church age. From the time that Jesus ascended to heaven and handed the baton of ministry off to the church, which was birthed at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, until he comes again, that is the church age. So from the time Jesus ascends until he returns is the church age. So we're still living in the church age. And between chapters 2 and 3, we're going to be able to see historically and in terms of present day application where we fit into the timeline of the church age. So we'll get to that next week and following. And then finally, in verse 19, the other part is that he is to write about what will take place later, and that is chapters 4 through 22. Now, most of the time, when anybody reads the book of Revelation, they think it's entirely about what will take place later. It's not. Some of what happens in the book of Revelation has already taken place, and we'll see that in the first couple of chapters. But once you get to chapter 4, things dramatically change. And chapter 4 is actually the beginning of the rapture of the church. We'll get into details about it when we get there. And you don't see the church mentioned anymore until you get all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. So from chapters 4 to 22, here's basically the breakdown of those futuristic events. Chapters 4 and 5 deal with the rapture of the church. And when we say rapture, Uh, I don't want to take for granted that everybody knows this terminology, so I might go a little more slowly to break this down for those of you who aren't familiar with it. But the word rapture is an English word that just means to be seized or snatched up. It is from the Latin word raptus, 
And uh, we find that word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when it speaks of the rapture or the seizing of the church, when it speaks about how we will not all sleep, but, we, but um, um, the dead in Christ will rise first, rather. And then after that, those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. That word caught up, if you happen to have a Latin Vulgate Bible, you'll see that it's the word raptus, where we get our English word rapture. So the word rapture is nowhere in the English Bible, but it's derived from a term that means, a term that means to be seized up or snatched up. There will be a generation that never dies. There will be a generation of believers that does not experience death because there will be the trumpet sound of God, and that means then that the Christians who are alive on the earth at this uh, predetermined time, known only by the Father, will be actually seized and snatched and taken from the earth. And so it's going to be an incredible, glorious event, but chapter 4 begins that timeline, and then also within chapter 4 and 5, you see the saints kept in heaven while all this other stuff is happening on earth. What else is happening on earth? Well, according to the timeline I've given you there on the slides between chapters 6 and 18, you have the tribulation. It's capital T. We all go through tribulation small t. Jesus said, on this earth you will have tribulation small t, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But there will come a day that is unparalleled, a time for a seven-year period on the face of the earth where there will be tribulation capital T. It'll be broken into two segments. There's going to be a three-and-a-half-year time period followed by another three-and-a-half-year time period. The greatest, most intense part of this tribulation will be the latter three-and-a-half years of this seven-year time. Now, again, from... The timeline that I'm presenting to you, chapter 4, is the rapture of the church. I don't believe Christians are here during that tribulation period which breaks out upon the earth. Uh, There will be other scholars who will disagree with that, but be that as it may, that's the way that we're going to present it to you, and I'm going to give you the evidence as best I can from Scripture as to why we hold that position. Chapter 19, then, of course, is Jesus returning after the tribulation period. Battle of Armageddon at the end of that seven-year tribulation period. Jesus returns, and he's going to establish his kingdom here on earth for a thousand years. That's chapter 20, the millennial reign or the thousand-year reign on earth. It will be a glorious time. It'll be the time finally when true peace reigns upon the earth. You know how Miss America always wishes during the question portion of the competition for peace on earth, goodwill to men? Ain't going to happen. The only time we're really going to have true peace on earth is when the Prince of Peace comes. And when Satan is bound for that thousand-year period, Jesus ruling on the earth, the saints ruling with him, and so that'll transpire after the tribulation period. And then following that thousand-year period of Jesus reigning on earth, from uh, chapters 21 to 22, we have a description of the new heaven and new earth. Because the Bible says that this present earth and the present heaven will be destroyed by fire. Talk about global warming. And then um, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And I told you on Sunday, I didn't want to hear those words again in the English vocabulary, and and there I just used it. So anyhow, uh, there you have the basic outline. Most of Revelation, with a few exceptions, is chronological. The, The problem for us Westerners is we don't know where the timeline kind of begins. It's kind of like Someone once explained it to me like this. It's like stepping into an art gallery and that's in the round. And, you know, and then the, the pictures are displayed for you in, in a circular fashion. And kind of as Revelation unveils, as the revelation of Jesus Christ, the curtain is pulled back 
we see this circular picture of things. We don't often know where does all this stuff begin. But by and large, if you find the beginning point, it does pretty much follow chronologically with a few exceptions. There are three generally accepted methods of interpretation concerning this book of Revelation. The three methods are allegorical, historical, and then lastly, literal, and I put slash futuristic, because the literal interpretation is that most of these events happen in the future. Now, that's the one from which we will be presenting the book of Revelation, the third one, the literal futuristic view. Uh, I'll give you just real quickly, again, you won't be able to write this down quick enough, but just, just so that we understand these different viewpoints, the, the allegorical viewpoint basically says this, that everything in the book of Revelation is about symbolism, good versus evil, paganism versus Christianity, and the ultimate triumph of Christ in our lives. The book is seen as a spiritual allegory for the comfort and encouragement of the church, denying prophecies of literal future events. I reject this viewpoint, but that is one, that this is entirely a, a symbolic book. It symbolizes you know, all of this stuff allegorically, the, 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 the competition and contrast between good and evil and, and the conflict that ensues and all of that. This is all symbolic, hopefully to encourage the church, and, and it denies uh, the prophetic element of the book of Revelation. There's another viewpoint of this book, and that is historical. And there's really two kinds of historical viewpoints, not to clutter your mind even more with this, but, but let me just give you the two historical viewpoints. The one is what we call the preterist view. The preterist view deals with church history that includes only the early church's struggle against imperial Rome. This is somewhat similar to the allegorical method of a symbolic rather than prophetic view. Basically, those who hold to a preterist view believe that the book of Revelation was really a detail about the struggle of the church during the Roman Empire and only during the Roman Empire. And that, you know, the classic Antichrist is Nero and the persecution of Christians, which did happen, especially under Nero's hand, uh, is what Revelation captures. So they kind of, the preterist view kind of sees it again as an historical thing, kind of allegorical, symbolic to encourage us, but really these events, they would say, happened uh, historically during the Roman Empire. The other angle of the historical view is what I would just call the total view, the total historic view, which basically says that it considers all of church history beyond the Roman Empire to today, culminating in the second coming, a symbolic interpretation of the church's struggle against the world system. So this view, while also leaning in the historical vantage point, says that no, it's not restricted just to the Roman Empire. This is a book that deals with all of church history throughout the ages, culminating in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And uh, this historical viewpoint then either believes that the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ, uh, any of the historical viewpoints, whether we're talking the preterist view or this total view, the historical viewpoint of the book of Revelation it has a post-millennial or an amillennial view of um, the thousand-year reign of Christ. What do I mean? What I mean is, that the historical viewpoint says that the thousand-year reign of Christ either has already occurred, when, I don't know, or is occurring now, that we're in the millennial period of time, the thousand-year reign. Now, I got a couple of problems with that, a couple of big problems, one of which is the Bible says that during the thousand years, Satan is bound. So if we're living right now in the thousand-year reign, then supposedly Satan is bound. 
Last time I turned on my TV, Satan is alive and well. So I, I reject this viewpoint as well. But again, you, you can uh, do your homework and decide you want to believe the historical viewpoint and be wrong too. I don't care. But, uh, but anyhow, but, the, but then the literal futuristic viewpoint is, is where I lean and, um, and many church uh, scholars do. And, and that basically says this, that the events beginning in chapter 4, verse 1 are futuristic and following. Frequent symbolism is recognized, but events will be fulfilled in a literal way. There are differences within this view as to the timing of the rapture of the church. So we do make allowances. There are good, godly brothers and sisters in the Lord who believe that you go through the tribulation or who believe that you get raptured halfway in the tribulation period. So, you know, we can uh, agree to disagree on some of those things. Those aren't salvation issues, you know, especially as it relates to the, to the uh, rapture of the church. I mean, when the trumpet sound is given, uh, the church is going to go, and nobody's going to care about their theology at that point, you know. I mean, it's pre, post, or mid. What are you? Well, it, it's happening, so let's just go. So um, that's the way it's going to be. So uh, with that said, let's take a look here into chapter 1 this evening. Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Again, it's the revelation, the apocalypsis, the unveiling, the revealing of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So again, this is the Apostle John. Now, by this time, uh, in AD 95, he is, he's got to be in his upper 90s. He's got to be pushing 100 years of age. So, I mean, this is... Uh, very unusual for someone in the first century to be living this long, um, but he is. He's been banished to the island of Patmos. He's going to tell us in just a little bit because of uh, Domitian's uh, sentence, kind of like a, um, a punishment camp. And, he's, and he testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So there's a blessing right at the beginning of this book. There's a blessing for me because um, I'm reading it. There's a blessing for you because you're hearing it. That's what it says right here. Blessed is the one who reads the words. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written. It's interesting to note that the book of Revelation begins with a blessing and ends with a curse. Jump to chapter 22. Let me just show you real quickly. Chapter 22, last chapter of the book, and it's the only book of the Bible that is written in, in such a way, with a blessing at the beginning and a curse at the end. Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. <laughs> Now, you haven't even had the Bible study yet, and already you know this is not good, right? And, verse 19, if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So, some pretty sobering words to end this book on, but let's go back to chapter 1 now, because some pretty encouraging things that he begins with by letting us know, hey, you're going to be blessed because you're part of this Bible study. You're going to be blessed because you're hearing, you're reading, you're studying this book together. And so in verse 4, John introduces himself, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, the word seven 
Uh, if you do any study of numerology and you know, a study of the significance of numbers, um, seven in, in the Hebrew uh, um, language and in numerology indicates perfection or completion. The, the number seven is used more than 50 times through the book of Revelation. And it's written to the seven churches, and the word church is used 19 times in the first three chapters, and then you don't see the church again until chapter 22, verse 16, another piece of evidence that the church has been raptured, taken from the earth. We'll talk about that more when we get to chapter 4. But a lot of emphasis on the church, first couple of chapters. And again, these churches are located in the province of Asia, which is uh, Asia Minor. We're talking the the, uh, modern-day country of Turkey. And it says, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So again, several titles of Jesus in there, uh, the one who is and who was and who is to come, uh, Jesus Christ, a faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, what does it mean there in verse 4 when it says, and from the seven spirits before his throne? Uh, Some have interpreted this to mean the sevenfold a virtue of the Spirit of God, which could be possible. Uh, Isaiah 11 and verse 2 speaks about the Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of wisdom, Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. That's plausible. I think it probably is a reference, however, to the angels. It's, a, it's spirits, small s, seven spirits before the throne. If you'll jump quickly to chapter 8 and look at verse 2, I'll show you why that's possible because it tells us that seven angels are around the throne of God in chapter 8 and verse 2. And John says, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So if chapter 8 tells us that there are seven angels who stand before God, then you go back here to chapter 1, trying to figure out what he means by seven spirits before the throne, and you compare Scripture with Scripture, which is always the best commentary in your Bibles, is to compare Scripture with Scripture, then it probably is a reference to these seven angels, seven spirits before the throne of God. And so in the rest of uh, verse 5, it says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. And everybody said, Amen. Now notice again that he loves us. He begins, you know, this is a heavy book, and it's, it can, it, it, on face value, it can be interpreted with a lot of doom and gloom, but, but he's going to lead into all of this terrible stuff by reminding us of this, that God loves us, that he loves us, and that he has freed us from our sins. And how? By his blood. And we just partook uh, of communion tonight, and, you know, just that symbol of the blood and the reminder of the broken body, that Jesus died on the cross, and so this is going to be his final wake-up call to a lost and dying world that rejects him. I don't want anybody to look at the book of Revelation and think, this is some kind of sadistic thing where God is raining down fire and havoc upon the earth, and, you know, isn't this cruel? Look, many of us can testify to the fact that the only time we finally came to respond to Jesus was through difficulty and hardship. That We were too stubborn to hear of his love for us and of his goodness and his grace and his kindness it took a crisis, it took difficulty, it took some kind of a, of a brokenness in our lives until we finally came to the place of surrender to Jesus. And for those who are forsaking him and rejecting him, 
This is God's final wake-up call to the earth. So even though it looks intense, and it is, you have to bear in mind that the tribulation that happens on the earth is so that people might finally get saved before the end of the age. Because once the age is over, there will be no more salvation. It's done. It's finished. And we spend all eternity with God. And so he wants as many to be saved as possible. And for that last holdout of people who were just too stubborn to receive it and believe in him, he is going to have a dynamic laser light show so that people can finally wake up and know that he is God. Now, unfortunately, Revelation tells us that even still many will reject him, that many will not believe in him, that they will not accept him. And that's, that's tragic. But he's going to do everything he can, even to the point of, we'll see when we get into this study, that he dispatches an angel who proclaims the gospel around the world, flying in the air, just proclaiming the gospel. You will not be able to say people didn't know and people didn't have a choice. That God even dispatches an angel to preach the gospel, the Bible says, while flying around in the air around the world so that every person can hear and can know. And so when we look into this and we see all the things that happen in you know a very intense way, know this from the beginning, that God loves us and he has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. Now that's uh, speaking of the kingdom age. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. That we will be a kingdom of priests and, and administrators, if you will, to serve the Lord. I do believe personally that the Jews will be the ones to be the priesthood in the temple that will be rebuilt, and um, the Jewish believers. And then uh, for the rest of the Gentile believers, we will help in, in administering justice because the Bible says that, don't you know, that we will judge the world. So that's to come when it speaks here of a kingdom and priest to serve as God forever and ever. And then in verse 7, he says, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. And everybody said, Amen. All right, so verse 7 says, Look, he is coming with the clouds. Um, you don't need to turn there, if you can, if you want, but let me find a Daniel 7 and verse 13, or you can write that in the margin of your Bible, Daniel 7, verse 13. Listen to what Daniel prophesies. <clears throat> in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Sound familiar? He says, in his vision I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now compare it with chapter 1, verse 7 of Revelation. Look. He is coming with the clouds. Uh, there are more than 300 Old Testament passages that are incorporated in the book of Revelation. More than 300. Most of them are not quoted separately. They are integrated within the whole book, so you don't always know when you're reading something that has already been given to us uh, from an Old Testament prophecy. But there are 79 prophecies taken from the book of Isaiah. And there are 53 taken from the book of Daniel, just to name a few of the 300. And this is one of them taken from the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel saw this vision. Look, he, the Messiah, Christ, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Now, yes, he will come in the air, but this is speaking of his second coming. And when it says here he is coming with the clouds, the word with is meta in the Greek. It doesn't say he comes in the clouds. He says he comes with the clouds. Why is this important? Because... I don't believe that it speaks here of clouds in the sky 
This is a term that refers to the saints. For example, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 says, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. It wasn't speaking of, you know, something in, in, in the atmosphere. It was speaking of a group of people, a throng of people. Cloud of witnesses refers to people. We also know from 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 13, it says, May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. That speaks of the saints because those who have already died to go to be with the Lord or those who have been raptured and are with the Lord at that time will come back with him. So when Jesus comes, he comes with the clouds, a term that probably refers to the saints surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and then every eye will see him. Now, this is not the rapture. This is when he comes after rapture, after tribulation, with the saints, when he comes back to the earth to rule for a thousand years. John is just getting a glimpse of this, and he's seeing the whole picture of Jesus' second coming to the earth, and he says when he comes, he comes with the clouds or with the saints, and every eye will see him. Everybody will notice and see it's going to be a miraculous moment when everybody around the earth will see the return of the Lord Jesus And even those, reading again from verse 7, even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. Very similar to what we read in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Here's what it says. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me. This is the Lord speaking. The one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. So again, prophecy incorporated in the text here of Revelation chapter 1. When Jesus returns, in particular the Jews who have pierced him, Zechariah is addressing there in Zechariah 12, they're going to look upon Jesus. They're going to see the marks of his crucifixion. And Zechariah also tells us, I didn't read it, but it also tells us that they will ask him, where did you receive these marks? And he will respond, he will say, I received them in the house of my friend. That there's going to be this moment when the Jews who did not believe that Jesus was Messiah, who survived the tribulation period, will see Jesus in the second coming, notice the piercings, recognize that he actually is Messiah, and so all Israel will be saved, is what the book of Romans tells us. So they will have to go through the tribulation. The Bible says that two-thirds will perish. Two-thirds of the Jews will perish during the tribulation period. But that third that comes out refined by the fire, who believe in Jesus, will then see him for who he truly is. They will put their faith and trust in him, and so all Israel will be saved. But there will be deep mourning. Can you imagine that, you know, the, um, the, the, the denial of Jesus for centuries and centuries, for a couple of millennia now, and then being confronted with him and seeing the marks of his crucifixion, just the conviction for having denied him. And then he stands before you in great power and majesty with the marks of his crucifixion. And there will be great mourning because people will be broken in their hearts over the sight of Jesus bearing the marks of his crucifixion. So in verse 8, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom, and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now notice he says here, your brother, brother in the Lord, companion in the suffering. Now that's interesting because John, along with his brother James, remember they went to Jesus and, and they, 
And one of the Gospels says their mommy went with them too, asking Jesus if her little boys could sit on his right and on his left when he came into his kingdom. Remember that? And so, you know, here they are, and mommy's trying to, you know, do their bidding. And Jesus says, you don't, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we can drink it. He goes, no, you don't, you don't understand. And, and then in the end, though, he confirms that you shall drink this cup, but he speaks of a suffering. Now, James, the one brother, is the first martyr of the church. He dies in Acts chapter 12. He's the first apostle who was killed, who was martyred. Um, and um, Terry was doing like a little homeschool lesson with uh, Lindsay a couple, uh, um, well, last year, I guess it was, and talking about being martyred and uh, what that means. And Lindsay said, martyred. And Terry goes, yeah, martyred. And Lindsay says, well, you say martyr, I say murder. Tomato, tomato. We had to explain to her, no, 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 actually there's a separate kind of murder called martyr. But anyhow, um, James is martyred by the sword. He's beheaded, Acts chapter 12, by Herod Agrippa I. He's the first to die. John, his brother, is the last to die. And he is banished here on the island of Patmos. And why is he banished? He says, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was going around preaching the gospel. And it landed him in a prison camp. He got thrown on this deserted island with just, you know, hauling rocks. And he's an old man. And, and here he is banished to this island because of his stand for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's the last surviving of the apostles. So it's interesting, the two brothers, the, James dies as the first. John's going to die as the last. They both experience their share of suffering. And uh, for, for John, it's here on the island of Patmos. And he says in verse 10, on, it was on the Lord's day, meaning this is Sunday now, because the Lord's day was commonly referred to as Sunday or Sunday, the Lord's day, ever since Jesus rose from the dead, that they commemorated his resurrection continually on a Sunday. And so though, yes, the Jewish Sabbath is still Saturday, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, that the Lord's day and the, and the traditional day of worship since the resurrection of Jesus has been continually on Sunday since the early church. And he says, it was on the Lord's day, it was on a Sunday, and I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, he says, I was in the spirit. Actually, the article the is not in the original language, so it can be more literally read, I was in spirit. And what he is speaking of here is that he actually, in some um, marvelous, miraculous way that we don't understand, he doesn't give us great detail about, was actually taken in his spirit, to the very presence of the Lord, where he beholds this grand vision that is about to unfold here. This is more than just he had a dream. You know, he's an old guy hauling rocks who had a nap, and he came up with this. That he actually was taken in spirit and, and, and uh, transported spiritually in the presence of God to behold this. And the first thing is not what he sees, but what he hears. And what he hears behind him is a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, when we read in Thessalonians about the trumpet call of God for the rapture of the church, it's probably not a literal trumpet. It is probably the voice of God that sounds like a trumpet. Because here is the voice of God saying, verse 11, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, those are the seven churches that we'll read about in chapters 2 and 3. Verse 12 says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, circle that word lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. Let me just read further, and then we'll come back. 
His head was, uh, and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Now, capture this scene here. John hears a voice like a trumpet behind him. He turns around, and when he turned around, he saw seven golden lampstands. Now, the lampstands are otherwise known as menorahs. We're talking the Jewish lampstands. Now, this is a menorah. This is a tiny one, obviously, but this is a menorah, seven-branch uh, candle, uh, candelabra, and, um, and he sees seven golden ones of these. And the lampstands are, are going to be defined for us in verse 20 as the churches. Uh, we'll see it in a moment. But the lampstands represent these seven churches, okay? And he says in verse 13, Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. That's a title for Jesus. Uh, Daniel uses that title in, in his uh, prophetic book related to Messiah. It is the most often term that Jesus uses about himself in the Gospels. It's not the most often term in the book of Revelation about Jesus. The most used of Jesus is the word lamb in the book of Revelation. But son of man was the one that was most often used by Jesus and about Jesus in the Gospels. It's a prophetic term. And here he comes in this great appearance. Now, this is his second coming, okay? First coming when Jesus first came to the earth, meek and mild, born in a, in a, you know, in a humble abode in, in a manger. Um, second coming of Jesus with fire, with passion, with majesty. Verse 13, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. Right in the margin of your Bible, majesty. There's going to be four characteristics here of our Lord. The first one is very majestic. He comes looking very majestic. Verse 14, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. White in scripture, and when it speaks of the reference related to like wool and snow, it's a reference to purity. Remember Isaiah, come let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. So it's speaking about the cleansing work. So he comes in majesty, he comes in purity, and he comes with authority because it says, and his eyes were like blazing fire, and his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Bronze is often a symbol of judgment. So here he comes in all of his glory, majesty, purity, authority. Rest of verse 15, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. On his right hand, he held seven stars. And we're going to see that stars is a, a word that is uh, translated messenger. And in the in scripture, it's translated as the word angels, but it may not necessarily mean literally angels. We'll talk about that in a moment. But in his right hand, he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp double edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. So there you have glory shining in all its brilliance. So you have majesty, purity, authority, and glory. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, he's not slain in the spirit here, okay? Um, and I know, you know, some people have experienced that, and, and that's their own um, experience. You can't find that experience in Scripture. The only times people get knocked over by the spirit are the enemies of God. You see that happening when Paul is knocked down, uh, when he's still an enemy of God. You see that when the Roman soldiers get knocked down, when they try to arrest Jesus, they're the enemies of God. The only believers you see slain in the spirit were Ananias and Sapphira, and that's a whole different kind of slain in the spirit because they were killed. He falls at his feet. This is in worship as though dead because this is a, a posture of complete surrender, humility, and worship. He is beside himself. He is in, in a position of, uh, he is 
He has um, uh, prostrated himself in a position of complete surrender and uh, yielding in his devotion to the Lord. And then it says that he placed his right hand on me, Jesus did, and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. And it defines it for us. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So lampstands are the churches. Clearly, some of your Bibles has a footnote by angels because agalos translates literally messengers. Messengers don't have to be angelic creatures. And when we get into the study next week into chapters 2 and 3, each of the seven letters are addressed to the angels of those churches, but there's nowhere in Scripture where angels are ever entrusted with the supervision or oversight of a church. So it literally is referring to, again, by all um, best of interpretations, is that the messenger is really a reference to the pastors of each of these local churches. So when you consider here that Jesus is saying that, the, that he is walking among the lampstands, he walks among the churches, and he holds in his hand the messengers, the one who deliver the gospel, or the pastors of these churches. How comforting to know that he walks in our midst and that he holds pastors in the palm of his hand as he leads his church. Amen? Well, that's where we'll end for tonight. We'll pick up chapter 2, Lord willing, next week. So read ahead as we dive into the seven letters to the seven churches. Let's have a word of prayer. Do you all survive the first week? You're doing well. You're doing good. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and we just uh, give you praise for revealing yourself through the pages of Scripture in such detail, in such um, relevance, that you loved us and freed us from our sins. Thank you, Lord, for washing over our sins and cleansing us, dying on the cross, freeing us from our sin. And you have given us this revelation that we might know more of you and the things that are to come. So, Lord, find us faithful, find us ready as we await your return, as we long to hear the sound of the trumpet call of God calling us home. And we love you and we praise you together for this time in your word this evening. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. We'll see you this weekend for our weekend services. God bless you. On the cutting edge of the Messianic movement, Solace Radio will rock your faith and bring the Bible alive. Find your Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach and explore the whole Bible and discover treasures there. Solace Radio. Talk Radio's red-headed stepchild. Solace Radio. We go where no talk radio has gone before. So if you open to chapter 8, um... There's a pattern unfolding in the book of Acts that, uh, that I think is interesting because it's partly what Yeshua asked the disciples to do. If you remember, uh, the call for the disciples was to go and make disciples. Um, and they were supposed to do it in a pattern. Um, and the pattern was generally locally, a little bit further away, and then internationally. I mean, essentially. And for them, it was Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So, in this story, what we have is, first, you have thousands of people coming to the temple every day uh, to worship Yeshua and to proclaim his kingdom. Um, and there's miracles happening, and there's apostles coming together. Um, and they uh, they grow at a rate where they actually start making the authorities uncomfortable. Um, you know, 
they start making people uncomfortable because they're feeding probably more widows and orphans than everybody else, and the resources keep coming in, and they keep feeding people, and they, they overwhelm themselves to the point of they have so many uh, from the Hellenist uh, group of Jewish people that the they actually have to break off and give some responsibility to a group of guys, right? And within those group of guys, you have um, both uh, Philip, who we're going to talk about, but also Stephen. And Stephen, when he gets anointed, uh, miracles start happening around him. And even though he's a table server, he's leading people to the Lord, and things are happening at a rate that the Sanhedrin bring him in for questioning. And he kind of gives them this uh, um, real kind of his response sort of is, you know, who's the one that needs to turn around here, guys? You know, and they don't like that very much because uh, they've kind of sold out to the man and Stephen's pointing it out. And Stephen's not even as educated as they are and not even from Jerusalem necessarily. In fact, we know he's not. Um, so he stands up in front of the people who are supposed to be the best Jews in the world and tells them that they need to return to God. Uh, which causes them to ultimately kill him um, because of the... Now, some, what happens is is this becomes a catalyst. Stephen's, uh, what happens with Stephen becomes a catalyst because at this point, remember, everybody's coming to Jerusalem, right? So months have gone by and thousands of people have come to the Lord and thousands of people, uh, Jewish people are finding themselves in the temple every day, but the goal was to make disciples of all the nations. So you have nations coming. There are some that come from different nations, and there are Jewish people and non-Jewish people that are sort of engaging um, as far as we can tell. Um, but at this point, generally it's Jewish people. I mean, in fact, it doesn't even really say that there's really any Gentiles in this group yet. Um, at this point, it's thousands of Jewish people, um, which is important because some people like to, in their theology, they have a basic premise that the Jews rejected the Messiah, and that's not really true. Um, the leadership does. Um, the overall group does, but thousands of people don't. Um, if we had 5,000 people in our congregation, it would be a completely different setting. Everybody, it would, it wouldn't seem like a failure if there were 5,000. We wouldn't even fit in this room. We'd have to move over to Willow or something. Um, there's not even enough room for that. So you have to imagine the scope here that's happening. And Stephen gets killed, but in the process, we get introduced to a couple new characters. One is, uh, Rabbi, uh, Shaul, Rabbi Paul. Um, who's in the process of and agrees with and seems to be in either in charge of or at least in charge of the coats, um, but is in charge of something where they point out that there's a guy there who was leading the charge against these people who were coming to the Lord. This group of called out ones, this ecclesia, this group of, uh, well, some people translate the church, this group of called out ones. Because remember, in Scripture, there's always a remnant, and that remnant are, are always being called by God to the truth of Scripture. That's why we call the Torah of truth. That if you stick, you even remember what we said in the half Torah. Solomon, if you stick to scripture, then your life will go a certain way. And you know what those other guys did, right? Because they didn't stick to the word of God. They ended up over here. If you stick to wisdom and the word of God, your life will go well for you. The same thing's always true for us. So here they're preaching the same thing, the kingdom of God. Um, they stone Stephen, but it starts this process, right? Because because of this, they're now going to get scattered. Now, instead of them in their scattering, uh, stopping preaching the gospel, it forces them to do the thing that Yeshua already asked them to do. Right? He wanted them to go from Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth, but they were in the temple still. Remember? And the temple is not, is, according to the prophets, the temple is supposed to be the beginning of the flow of God's spirit that fills up the nations. Right? Remember, God's spirit is supposed to come out of the temple fill up all the valleys and go to all the world, 
but they're still in the temple, right? So what happens is Stephen gets killed, and Paul then turns around and starts really persecuting, right? And that's where we end up right in the beginning of chapter 8. Um, it says, on that day, um, in fact, let's go to the first verse, and Saul was there giving approval for his death. So Saul was there, right? But what happens is, is unbeknownst to them, by them actually starting to persecute uh, the, the group of believers, they're actually pushing them into the mission they were supposed to be on already, right? And often persecution creates the door in which uh, God pushes us through to get us to where we actually are supposed to be. Um, often when we feel comfortable, we stay where, we're, where we are because things seem to be working, and God then allows something or pushes something or reminds you in some way. Um, and in this sense, the persecution that was meant to shut this down, remember, um, the Gamaliel says, if this is of God, it'll grow. If not, just leave it alone. So Paul doesn't even answer. He Remember, they were supposed to kind of leave it alone and see what happens. Paul actually pushes, and it actually grows more. Right? So you would think that he's thinking, well, you know, let's squash this thing before it gets big. Um, which is the same thing if you remember that David's son did to him when he was trying to take over the kingdom. Uh, which is different than David did to, to Saul when David waited. You see, so there's God's timing in this. There's all these different things. So, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the ecclesia or the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered. So, remember, there were thousands of people in the temple. If everybody's scattered, now you have thousands of people just being sent to all different places in, in, in Israel, right? And generally, they're going to go maybe where they're from, or they're going to go to a place that's safe. And we know that soon after this, there'll be a war that's, that scatters all of Judaism, right? So the apostles go one direction, the believers all go a different direction, um, and this starts the Acts of the Apostles. Do you understand? that? That's what this book is about, is how did the apostles even get to Rome? How did the apostles even try to get to Spain? How did the apostles spread themselves out throughout the world is sometimes they're pushed, sometimes the Holy Spirit gives a direction, sometimes they make a choice, but ultimately... The gospel is being spread on a scale that cannot be contained. So it says that they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, and godly men buried Stephen and mourned for him deeply. But Paul, or Saul, began to destroy the church, going from house to house, dragging out men and women and putting them in prison. Right. So he's actually trying to slow this thing down, but the scattering actually does something uh, pretty amazing. In fact, uh, the roads, the Roman roads that are there, um, actually make it possible for them to actually scatter even more efficiently. Um, the roads that were there, if you look at the ancient roads, um, there were really three main roads. In fact, you can bring the map up on the screen that I have. And if you have your map, you can mark a couple places because now we're no longer in Jerusalem, right? We're scattering a little bit. So bring the map up on the screen and I'll do, uh, uh, I'll explain it. But generally, there were three ways that you could go along the riverbed. If you look at the map, um, on the furthermost left side, uh, near Ashkelon and Gaza, do you see that one road? That's an ancient road um, that goes along the water, right? This is the road that God tells Moses not to go on because he's going to get into a battle, remember? So he has to go around the other way, around on the side. So on the other side of the Dead Sea um, and all the way up to the Sea of Galilee, on the other side, which is today Jordan, um, there's a thing called the King's Highway, and people would take the King's Highway through Jordan. There's one main... Uh, road that goes along the water, and then there's a road that goes straight up the middle. Do you see that? If you kind of go toward Beersheba and up toward Bethany in Jerusalem, up to Shiloh, do you see that road that goes right up the middle? Now, what the Romans did, which is not on this map, 
is they created lots of different roads that connected all these three. These ancient roads were the ways that you go. They're on the tops of the wadis, the dry riverbeds, right? And if you follow those riverbeds, um, and you can watch, if you go on YouTube, you can see it, that there are uh, water that comes into those riverbeds, especially in the wintertime. Like now, it's a lot like California, where everything gets green, which is where I just was, so I saw it. It's actually the prettiest time to go to California because there's snow on the mountains, and there's water in the uh, rivers, and everything starts blooming. The same thing's true in Israel. When you go to Israel, you can't walk in the riverbeds because you never know if the water's going to come flooding down. And you can, if you Google it, you'll see uh, flash floods in Israel. You'll see them come in really quick, and it just drags stuff away. So what the Romans did was they came and even spread it out further. And they made it even more possible. Now, this is what people call the Levant or the uh, Fertile Crescent Israel. If you look on a satellite picture of Israel, you'll see that there's green in, in all the way south in Egypt. And then there's green all the way up in, in the northern parts like Iraq. And uh, there's a lot of green near the water. But otherwise, it's all desert. And if you follow it, there's literally a, a curve that goes around Israel that's all green. So if you were going to trade between the main powers of the world, you'd have to take these roads to get between Babylon and Egypt, right? This is also why so many people go to Egypt. That's why Joseph went to Egypt. Uh, that's why the uh, the brothers all go to Egypt. They're, it all depends on who the power is at the de- time of the day, right? Now, Rome at this point is a power, but they're all the way on the other side of the Mediterranean. So they literally create roads everywhere, um, and they inadvertently don't realize, but the roads that they create that connect all these places make it possible for evangelism to happen uh, in a more effective way. You know, they think they're just civilizing the country, but what they're really doing is making it possible for everybody to hear. Not only that, what they call is this Pax Romana. There's this peace that's kind of created by the Romans um, that everybody can travel somewhat freely. And on top of that, there's a common language. So if you meet somebody from Ethiopia and they're reading a scroll of Isaiah, you can understand what they're reading because they on the road that the Romans built, in a language probably that everybody understands, they're all saying, hey, we can now have a conversation about this God that you may not have heard of now because you're on the road built by a pagan with a pagan language, but with a holy word. It's the same thing that's true today. right? So the Acts of the Apostles are interesting because what happens from this point on is they get scattered, but you can see, if you look up into Jerusalem, right in the middle of this map, if you look straight across to Ashdod, in Ashkelon and Gaza, what you'll find is there's a road from Jerusalem that goes right past Lachish, right to Gaza. That's the southern road, right? If you go straight west of Jerusalem, you get Ashdod, um, and then you also, a little north of that is Caesarea, along the, along the coast, north, um, which you don't see on this. Joppa is really the same thing as Joppa, like uh, that's really today uh, Tel Aviv, essentially. And then Caesarea is a little higher than that, right? So it's interesting because um, you'll see that... Uh, Actually, today's, if you go today, Ashland's an awesome beach if you want to go to a good beach in it. Ashland's a great beach. But the Gaza today is the Gaza Strip. Same place, right? Still Gaza. That little section between Ashkelon and Gaza is the Gaza Strip. Real tiny. I mean, this is a zoom in of just the southern part of Israel. And it's, and Israel's about the size of New Jersey. So Gaza Strip's like Atlantic City or something. It's about the size of that if you're from the East Coast. Anyway, so you can see that what's happened is they were in Jerusalem. And then within one move, now they're scattered across all of Judea and Samaria, right? So Yeshua says, I want you to go to everywhere. They stayed in that one dot in the middle. In fact, up until this point in the, in the text, we've only stayed right there in Jerusalem. Nothing's happened now for the first eight chapters other than Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden now, because of what Paul thinks he's doing, which he thinks is right, right? God inadvertently uses, which is, which happens over and over in scripture, uses what the Romans did and what Paul did 
And this goes right to the heart of what men mean for evil, God can turn to good, right? And that's really what's happening here. And it's important because you again have uh, somebody who's not supposed to know, knows. And somebody who's supposed to know doesn't know. So here we have Philip, who's kind of the new guy. He's a Hellenist Jew. He's really a, he's really a, a, a table server. You know, I mean, it's amazing. Like, you know, when you go out to eat, you don't expect that the person who's serving tables can also do miracles, right? I mean, you don't go there and say, hey, you know, show me a miracle or something, you know. But it's amazing that could you imagine the kind of place, what kind of restaurant it would be if you went and, oh, the guys there do miracles. And it would, people would go there. Just, you know, for the entertainment sake at the very least, but then also for, it would draw a crowd. So what happens is, is God doesn't allow it to stay in Jerusalem and he uses a, a funny way to do it. Um, but he doesn't stay there because later what's going to happen is he uses Stephen's death to scatter the groups. He uses Philip to fulfill the commandment, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And then he takes Paul and sends him all the way, right? The guy who caused all this mess actually comes back. Um, and we'll talk about that in a week or two weeks, potentially. So here we have Philip, and this breaks down really into three sections. There's Philip um, in Samaria, and then Philip talking to the Ethiopian. Really two different groups, but it's, it's in fact, Ethiopia, according to tradition, uh, especially in Roman tradition, Ethiopia is considered the ends of the earth. That's what, that's what they called, um, literally the Romans called Ethiopia, the ends of the earth. So it's funny that literally he's saying, Luke's making a point here, that we went from, Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, right? He's showing that there's a fulfillment in Yeshua's words here. So just to tell the story, so Philip, um, as Paul is destroying houses and dragging people to prison, Philip, uh, who was uh, one who had been scattered, preached the word wherever they went, right? So literally, it's they didn't shut up because of what was Paul was doing. They just figured, oh, if we can't preach the word in Jerusalem, we'll preach it wherever we can, whether it's on the street or whether it's in Gaza. Like, they don't care, right? Wherever they go, they preach the word. Um, and generally, they've been, they've had some encounter with God in which they preach wherever they go. So Philip went down, uh, to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the word of the Messiah there. Where the crowds heard Philip, they saw miracle signs he did and they paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now this is important because what they call in, in Greek is a parenthetical or a, uh, they're trying to show you that there's a, a unit of story here, right? There's great joy for Philip in Samaria, and then there's great joy for the Ethiopian when he gets baptized, right? So it's trying to show you that this story all goes together. They're not really two different stories. They go together because for, for some kind of context, in fact, the Greek grammar is actually saying joy and joy, this all has to do with joy. So there are people who are reading this who may not find this to be a joyful thing, right? they may think that it should stay in Jerusalem. In fact, you get people later who fight over, it should stay in Jerusalem. This is for us and not them. But they're finding great joy to spread this to the whole world, including Samaria. And if you remember, Samaria were the ones who were left after the captivity that mixed the, the when the um, Assyrians came in, they literally bred the people out. So you had a mixed breed of kind of half Jews, half Syrians. In fact, the people didn't even consider themselves Jews. They don't even consider themselves Jews today. There's about two or 300 uh, Samaritans left. Um, who live in Samaria, and they don't consider themselves Jews or Arab. And that was true back then, too. They still worship on Mount Gerizim. They still worship on a different mountain, just like the woman that Yeshua met at the well, right? She said, one day, uh, maybe, you know, you worship on a different mountain than I do. She was still localized. And Yeshua says, yeah, but one day the mountains won't matter because this thing is going to spread, 
And she goes, oh, good. And then what does she do when she finds out? She spreads it to the people in Samaria. So now you have people, we're coming back to Samaria. Philip is, was a table server, and now he's been scattered. He got his, he lost his job, essentially, because he's not in Jerusalem anymore. He's not serving tables to the widows. He's just walking down the street. So he decides, I'm going to go to Samaria, which I don't know about you, but to, even today, you don't drive through Samaria, right? Samaria is like Nablus, right? Like that center of PLO activity. That's where people, you don't drive up the middle. In fact, if you go up that middle road in Jerusalem, they'll stop you at multiple checkpoints and say, why are you going down this road? Don't you know you're going to Samaria? And on the map, it's got a big red circle around Samaria. Don't go here. Right? Drive around. I mean, it always tells you to drive around. So it's it's funny that when you go to Samaria, people are like, why are you going to Samaria? Same thing's true back then, and it was true for all the way back to the captivity. Because there was a fight between who's the real Jew. And the, the story of this is it doesn't matter anymore because the gospel and the Messiah are for everyone, right? So it doesn't matter if there's a big red circle. He's going to go there because what's he, he can't go back to Jerusalem. So Samaria, might as well go there. In fact, that's actually probably a safe place to go because who's going to go to Samaria, right? So he goes to Samaria and he is not only preaching the gospel, but he, demons are being cast out, right? Um, people are being healed, and there's joy in the city, right? So there's joy for this entire city. So the gospel has all of a sudden gone from Judea to Samaria in one shot, right? One scatter, and the and the gospel has spread. Um, it's amazing that no matter where the church of, of Yeshua, meaning the ecclesia, gets scattered to, no matter what happens, no matter... In fact, the more persecuted it's become, the more it's spread. That's why there's a revival happening in Korea. That's why there's a revival happening in China. The more it gets... Um, scattered and persecuted, the more people jump on board. It's only because of the move of God, right? That people literally, they're so moved by what they find in Scripture and their encounter with God that even while they're being persecuted and they could be murdered for their faith, they'll still go into basements and, and, and try to memorize Scripture and try to remember it so that they can preach it to each other, so they can tell each other. They will do anything to tell people about the gospel because it's so contrary to the situation that they're in, right? Now, what Paul wants, I mean, what Luke wants us to know, though, is that this is not just merely magic. So he interrupts this story with something that seems like an interruption, but he's in Samaria, right? And there's a pretty famous person called Simon the Sorcerer. Now, from time to time, this is verse 9, a man named Simon practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and proclaimed, this man is the divine power known as the great power. So they literally were not just seeing him as a magician. They were saying he was God, or at the very least, he had the power of God, right? They had met somebody before who had the power of God, and now they have somebody else who's saying he's a great guy, he shows them some magic, and they say, must be, this is another great man of God, right? So he's tricking, um, this is, and they followed him because he amazed them from a long time with his magic. But when they believed, Phil, uh, but when they believed Philip and he preached the good news in the kingdom of God, and the name of Yeshua the Messiah, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized and followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles, right? So even there's a contrast here that what we're doing is not magic, right? This isn't just a show. People will say all the time, in fact, uh, if you ever watch Penn and, uh, Penn and Teller, Penn's whole problem is he's such a good magician. He says, look, I'm such a good magician. I can, I can do miracles. I'm a great person. In fact, he goes on TV and he says this. That's why I don't believe in God, because watch, boom, and he pulls out a rabbit. Or he does this thing, he says, look, anybody can do these tricks, right? Simon's the same way, but when Simon encounters it, he becomes a believer, 
right? Or at least he wants, he gets baptized, right? He goes through this process. He's still learning, but he's figuring it out. Now, Simon is very interesting, especially for Jewish history, because Simon becomes actually pretty famous. There are actually still people who follow the tradition of Simon the sorcerer. You can still find them on the internet. It's crazy that there are still Simonites out there, but they, uh, they follow whatever this, and there was actually, according to, um, early sources, uh, like Justin Martyr, you know, if you ever read, Justin Martyr writes a, a whole book explaining, um, his problems with Judaism. And he's actually not, the, he, when you read through it, it's not anti-Semitic. He has problems, he does have problems with certain things we don't have problems with, but he's not anti, uh, Semitic in the sense that he thinks God should kill us or anything like that, like some of the other guys. Um, but Justin Martyr, um, his entire testimony is he was from Samaria and his family were pagans and he talks all about Simon the sorcerer. And that's our earliest outside source of scripture is somebody from Samaria whose family probably followed something along the lines of what Simon preached, right? Because he didn't consider himself a Jew. It's amazing that, um, Justin Martyr, who becomes one of the church fathers, doesn't consider himself a Jew because his parents were pagan and he lived in Samaria which means that his family, at some point, were Jews. So he has a, he has this clash with Judaism because he doesn't know how to handle Judaism because he's really a Samaritan. You see, so it's interesting in church history. But he also tells us that Simon was so popular that they still struggled, to, even in his day, which is about 100 years later, with Simon followers. So even though Simon comes to the Lord, people still follow Simon. It's amazing that you can put something on the Internet. You can say things like, you know what, I believe this, this, and this. People will follow it. Even if you go back on the internet and say, I don't believe that anymore. It doesn't matter. They'll still, you'll still have followers. Yeah, I mean, that's why you have to be careful. But Simon, um, didn't get it. So what he's doing is contrasting that what we're showing you is not magic. This isn't like, if you come to the Lord, I can pull a rabbit out of my hat. Or this isn't, if you come to the Lord, I can cast out demons by some other power other than the power of God. The source of the power only comes from God. And what we find is that Simon struggles with this. That even though he understands that the Lord is um, the Messiah, and he follows the Messiah, and he recognizes that Yeshua is the Messiah, and gets baptized like everybody else. Um, when the apostles hear this, they come and notice there's this break. Now, this is one of the examples in Scripture of a second blessing, according to Wesley. Wesley has a second blessing, which is where we get if you ever have second blessing uh, Pentecostals, and this is one of their uh, verses. But essentially, they accept the Lord, but the Holy Spirit didn't show up yet. Now, there's not a pattern in Scripture about this. Sometimes the Holy Spirit shows up in a moment, like we find uh, in the next story, right? So this is important because we can't separate out Philip with Simon the sorcerer and Philip with the with the Ethiopian because they both have a, a similar experience but different. Because these people, even though they accepted the Lord, didn't have the Holy Spirit. Whereas when they meet up with when Philip meets up with somebody else, they get the Holy Spirit when they're baptized. So there's not a rule that when you're baptized, you get the Holy Spirit, or you always get the Holy Spirit after you're baptized. It all depends on a personal experience. It's whatever the Holy Spirit does. And we know from Scripture that the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit wants to do. So there are some, when they come out of the water, they're speaking in tongues. There are other people who they come out of the water, they didn't hit it yet, and then later they go, they get hit with something. Right? It all depends on whatever God's trying to break up and move in your heart. There's something that's happening in your life that God's trying to work. God is very gracious, if you've ever noticed that he works with us on an individual basis. And he has certain boundaries, but then there are certain boundaries that he he will work with you and go where your heart can go. And sometimes people move slowly and sometimes people move quickly. The Samaritans have some baggage, right? Especially with Jews. So a Jewish guy who just got kicked out of Jerusalem shows up 
and there, and God slowly gives it to him. He gives them the gospel, then he gives them the spirit. And I think that's partly because they, they needed to first break away from some, from sorcery, right? Because notice that if, if he came in and he was baptizing people in the Holy Spirit and he's doing what looks like magic to a bunch of people that have magic already, they're going to just go from one magician to the next. But instead God says, no, you have to believe it. Then I'll give you something really miraculous. Then you'll have some, this power and authority. So we have Simon's a good example of this, right? Simon struggles with this. So when they, the Jerusalem, when they show up, Peter and John come, and when they get there, they pray for them and that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not come upon them. This is verse, uh, 16. And they had, because they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Yeshua. So they've just been baptized, right? They're just kind of accepting people into the group and not much has helped beyond that. So Peter and John placed their hands on them and, uh, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw the Spirit was given by laying on the hands of the apostles, he offered them money. See, so he didn't, there's obviously a baggage that God's working through with him, right? That some people think that this is about a show, that this is about something that you do, that it's about money, that if you put your hand on the screen and you send me some money in the mail, then you'll get a thousandfold return, right? You have to separate yourself from that, right? Because that's not the truth. It's not health and wealth. It, it is wealth in the kingdom, but that's different than wealth in, in the earthly kingdom. That's different than the pain that will be wiped away versus the pain that happens in life. Those are different things. First, you believe that you're, that Yeshua is the Messiah, and then the things come after. But it all depends where your heart is. If you think that you can buy your way in, um, and you think it's all magic, then the Holy Spirit's not going to show up in the same way that it would for someone who doesn't have that baggage. And here we have an entire group of people who have a sorcerer, who, who does magic, and they have to separate it from the magic part. Now, even though the demons are being cast out and people are being healed, which is still miraculous, the Holy Spirit's even more powerful than that. So they're separating it out, and they're trying to teach a lesson. God's trying to teach a lesson on authority. The, the apostles have the authority. They pass down the authority. But it's a free gift, right? It's not something that you, you earn. It's not something that you get. It's not because you are a better magician. It has nothing to do with manipulating the system. That's what, that's what witchcraft is about. Right? Magic and witchcraft is about manipulating people and manipulating the system. And that's not what the Holy Spirit's supposed to be doing. The Holy Spirit's supposed to be forming, which is a type of manipulation, but one is positive and one is negative. Right? I mean, literally, leadership is manipulation. You are steering the, bo- the boat. So if you steer the boat, you are turning, but manipulation is the negative form of that. It's, a, it's using your powers for evil. So if God gives you an authority and you use that authority in a negative way, it becomes manipulative. You see? So they have to struggle with this. So he says, look, I'll, I'll give you guys money. Give me that authority. Simon saw that the Spirit had been given, so they said, give me, the, uh, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands will also receive the Spirit. Peter answered, now obviously there's a struggle happening here because Peter answers, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part of a share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart, for see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said will happen to me. Now notice, there are people who have come to the Lord, but haven't exactly come to the Lord. Right? There are people who are even baptized, and they're in this kind of transitional period where they don't really get it. Um, it doesn't mean that they're not saved necessarily. It doesn't say here that he's not saved, because he does need to still return. Right, And we don't know what happens to him after. doesn't tell us. When they testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Right, So now, everybody's preaching to Samaria. 
And we have them encountering people who were in God's movement a long time ago and have been kind of lost to tradition and weirdness, right? And God comes in and starts navigating through their oddness. Now, Samaria on some level is harder than the rest of the nation because Samaria has interacted with Jewish people already and had a bad experience. So if a Jewish guy walks into Samaria, everybody goes, what's he doing here? You know, it used to be the same way like if, if a white guy walked into Harlem. It was the same kind of issue. Like, it's not, it's not that they are going to fight or anything, but it's why are you even here? You know, and you say, well, I'm here to preach the gospel. Oh, okay, well then, you know, that becomes a different conversation. But if you're here for a different reason, then we want to know what. You see, so there's a conflict. So there's this, to preach to Judea, Samaria, and the end of the world, you have to find the common ground within the culture so that you could meet that culture where it's at and enculturate the gospel in a way that they could hear it. Once they hear it, then the things start coming with it, right? Once they say, you know what? You're right. The mountain doesn't matter. Gerizim is not our resting place. We don't want to stay in Gerizim. We want to be followers of the Messiah, which we believed in years and years ago. We used to believe in a Messiah, and now we don't. And that's true for Judaism today. They say, well, we used to believe in a Messiah, but now we don't. It's the same issue. You know, Reformed Jewish people are incredibly difficult to share the gospel with because they don't even believe in God most of the time. So you're not starting with, uh, don't you believe in the Messiah? It's, do you even believe in God? Right? So God has to reach them in a slightly different way than he'll reach somebody else. And that's why when missionaries go, they have all these incredible stories of, oh, I went to this place and this person was like, you know, put into a furnace and they didn't burn or snakes showed up and they were demon snakes and you're going, wow, this is incredible. Every place has its own story because the gospel finds its way into wherever they're at. And that's why later when Paul goes to Rome, he'll speak to them in their language and something they can understand. So the Americans have a slightly different problem. Now notice, Philip with the Ethiopian. Now this is an interesting thing. If you remember way back in the story when the, when the tabernacle, when they brought the um, ark out of the tabernacle, it says that they brought it down to Ethiopia, right? So years and years before this, right, there was a connection between the Ethiopians and the Jewish people. In fact, some people think that the tabernacle, I mean, that the, the ark is still in Ethiopia. Um, you can't go there today. There's a big tent and guys with guns guarding it, supposedly, but you can't go there. But the sense is, is that Ethiopia has such a connection with the Jewish people that there's an entire group of people there named Beta Israel who consider themselves Jewish people. And if you saw them on the street, you wouldn't say, hey, you look Jewish, right? Because they don't look European. They look African. So you go, but they, they have traditions that match our traditions. They have songs that match our songs. They have liturgies that match our liturgies. Not everything, because some of it we made up years later. But there's a connection. This is true back in the first century, too that there are Ethiopians who still have a connection to the temple. And we know this is true even from this particular person, that he has an Isaiah scroll. So he is the finance minister for all of Ethiopia, and he's got an Isaiah scroll. Not only that, he's reading it out loud, right? So he's literally in his car, driving down the street, reading the Bible out loud, which I don't know if you've ever seen an Ethiopian do that. I've never seen that happen, but um, he's reading it out loud. Now notice there are two groups here. You have the Samaritans and you have Ethiopians. Two people who have baggage with Israel. You see? Not only that, the Samaritans have been kind of bred out. The Ethiopians have been bred out. And this person has literally been cut out. Right? And if you go back to Deuteronomy, it says you can't even enter the assembly if, if you have um, an issue with testicles like this. Like if you've got your testicles crushed or cut off, you can't even enter the assembly. Right? So there's something about this gospel that's even more powerful than even before. Right? Because first it's, you think you're a Samaritan, you think, once you find out, because the hardest thing, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, a lot of people 
when you talk to them about the gospel, feel disqualified because of the baggage that they have. They'll say, that's really nice what you're telling me, but you don't know who I am, right? And some of you have heard this story, but I remember I, I was riding my skateboard one time and I rolled my ankle because I was older. And you maybe you've heard this story recently. Um, and I went with a friend of mine because I rolled it pretty bad. It got real swollen. I thought maybe I broke my ankle. And we went to the hospital. And we're sitting there, and there's a guy sitting across from us, and I, they triage people, so they call me in, and they're talking about my ankle and whether or not I need to go in. And um, I start hearing somebody yelling, screaming, top of his lungs, you don't know how it feels, you don't know who I am, you don't know what I've been through. And I'm looking, and my friend's sitting there like, what? Like, the, like this guy is like screaming at her, you know, and screaming at her. And I, and I come out, and I'm like, whoa, 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 what's going on? He goes, she doesn't know how it feels to wake up in a place she's never done. She's never drank so much that she just wakes up in her car somewhere. She's never done these things. She never feels this way. She can't tell me that God can change my life, you know. And she's been just trying to tell him about the gospel. She didn't know that he had a, he was an alcoholic and was in the hospital. And this guy looked 100 years old. He probably was 30, you know. I mean, he drank a lot, and he was there because he he was in in yeah. That was I saw that episode. Yeah, yeah. So. It's amazing because he's yelling at me saying, you don't know how it feels because, and you don't know where I've been. The, that sounds great to me, what you're saying. That's all nice to know that God has a plan for my life, but look at my life. And that's where the Samaritans are, and that's even where the Ethiopian is, right? That's why these stories go together. Because they start off with, I'm not allowed in the group, and they end up with great joy, right? All because they encountered the God of Israel. And when Israel holds back the God of Israel, we're actually doing the exact thing that God asked us not to do, which is to encapsulate ourselves. We're not supposed to be a light on the hill covered by something. We're supposed to be the light to the nations. And Judaism has become not only not a light to the nations, but we've become anti in a lot of ways. I remember my dad, uh, you know, people know Tovia Singer, and uh, they grew up, my dad and Tovia Singer grew up in the same neighborhood. And Tovia goes around and preaches against uh, Yeshua. He goes to synagogues and he preaches. He's one of the, the main, uh, in fact, he's top five on iTunes right now. We're trying to catch up on our uh, podcast uh, of Jewish podcasts because it's all about being an anti-missionary, why Jews don't believe in Yeshua, right? My dad and him grew up in the same neighborhood. It's funny that he has a has an accent that doesn't match being from New Jersey, but um, I guess if you spend a lot of time with Orthodox, you pick up an Orthodox accent. But they were on a, on Lee Strobel's show, and, there are, and he had them debating, my dad and Tovia. And Tovia says, oh, yes, and he's giving them all these things. And he says, you know, well, you think Jews are going to hell if they don't believe in Yeshua? And he goes, what, what is that? You think we should go through another Holocaust? And my dad says to Tovia, uh, you know that's not fair. You know that that's not right. Why would you do that? We know each other. And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, where do you think Gentiles go? Right? You make it sound like we're against you because we're telling you you're going to hell. Where do Gentiles go? And he goes, well, we don't really talk about that. He said, exactly. You're not trying to save anybody. We're trying to save you, and you're not trying to save anybody. What's the difference? Who, who's the one at fault here? And that's the truth is you have people, you got to remember, nobody went to Samaria, and now the Samaritans are showing up, right? It used to be the Hellenists. I mean, think about it this way. It used to be the, Jeru yeah, all the people in Jerusalem, yeah, those guys are coming to the Lord. Then the Hellenists show up, and they go, uh, Hellenists, uh, okay. Greek Jews, okay, we can handle Greek Jews as long as they stay in Jerusalem. And then they meet some Samaritans. We're not even sure if these guys are even Jews or not. But at least, at least somebody can say, well, they're half Jews. They used to be Jews. Now they forgot. Now they, we can preach to them, right? And we know that this is the thrust of the story because after Paul comes to the Lord in the next chapter, right? Peter struggles with a Gentile who comes to the Lord. That's the story that's happening in Acts, right? So you see that they're happy to talk to the Samaritans, Peter and John. Why? Because they know the baggage. They know that these guys are kind of Jews. 
They're not understanding that this thing is meant to go. It's not just to spread Judaism. It's to spread the gospel of the kingdom, right? So Simon gets it, sort of. He doesn't understand the authority, but maybe he'll get there. And now you meet this person who can't even come into the assembly. At least before, you had somebody who could come into the assembly if he just recognized who his true heritage was, right? If you stop being a pagan, you return to the Lord. Just, you know, Shuvah Yisrael, right? Now you have Philip walking down the street, and the angel says to Philip, go south to the road, to the desert road that leads down to Gaza. Now it's the same thing. Who would go to Gaza? I mean, it's like, you would go, who's going to go to Samaria? Now he's saying, now take a road to Gaza. He's going, man, I like Jerusalem. That's why I was a table server there, right? So he starts out on his way, and he meets an Ethiopian eunuch. And it's important that he's a eunuch because he can't get in. According to the law, he can't be part of the assembly. He can't be in. And remember the guy at the at the gate? Remember when they healed him? And he came into the temple for the first time, what that must have been like to come into the temple as someone who used to be unclean and now is clean? Now you have Samaritans coming in, and now you have even people from literally the ends of the earth showing up on a road, reading Isaiah. And it's amazing that they start out, he meets the Ethiopian He's an important official in charge of the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, right? So this man was on his way to Jerusalem to worship, but he couldn't go in. Do you understand that if he showed up, even with his money and his chariots, he would still be stopped at the door because he's a eunuch. So if he's going to worship, he's going to worship outside. You see, now somebody's coming along and saying, hey, good news, you're allowed in. You go, what, what do you mean? I've never been allowed in. Well, why? Because I'm an Ethiopian. Well, why? Because I'm a eunuch. Guess what? Now you're allowed in. That this has always been the this has always been the plan of God. So you wonder why was there joy? Why did the Holy Spirit show up to him right away? You know, because he was already on the road to Jerusalem, right? But all he had to do was be let in. These other people had a different kind of baggage. You see, they were dealing with sorcery. It had to be worked through. They had to figure out where they were. Then the Holy Spirit comes. With him, it's different because he's already on the right track. But he was limited by the culture. So he starts out, he says, this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way he was sitting in a chariot reading the book of Isaiah. The prophet and the spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. So not only is Philip now on a chariot, he has to run next to a chariot, which is kind of fun too. And Philip runs up, he hears, he says, do you understand what you were reading? He hears the man reading Isaiah, the prophet out loud. He says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? Now, you have to understand what this means, okay? Why does he, why has he never had anybody explain it to him before? Because when he shows up, they say, sorry, buddy, you're Ethiopian, and, well, sorry, you, you can't even be part of the assembly. You know, this happened, if you, if you look at the early um, AME churches, the, the uh, African Methodist uh, Episcopal Church, right? The, the people who started that, the man who started that, wanted to go to seminary, and the seminary said, well, you can't be in the seminary because you're black, so you can sit in the hallway, and whatever you overhear, that can be your education. So he sat in the hallway, and he cracked the door, and he sat in the hallway and learned as much as he could, started his own church, and it still exists today, right? Because you don't fit our culture. You don't fit what we think is right. In fact, you're not even really, really, in our, for some people, even human enough. You're kind of three-fourths human, so maybe you can sit outside. Same thing's happening with the Ethiopian. He's a eunuch. He can't go in the building, right? And according to the law, he can't even be in the assembly. So it's not even just cultural, which is a problem. Now it's also scriptural that he's not allowed in the assembly. So some people say, is the law done away with, right? And some people say, completely done away with. And there's other people say, no, there are only parts of it that are done away with. And here's an example of part of the law that's done away with. That before, what was meant to protect the group has now been protected by the Holy Spirit. So now the group doesn't need to protect it because the Holy Spirit protects it, right? 
So now you don't have to worry if somebody is lame or used to be lame or used to be a Samaritan or used to be and still is a eunuch. They can now be part of the assembly, right? Which is part of what God said would happen in the end. That's the prophecy. Now notice, what is he even reading? He's reading Isaiah 53, right? And Isaiah 53, if you haven't noticed, is like the thing we send out to everybody. Chosen people does it. Jewish Jesus does it. We always talk about Isaiah 53. Why? Because it is the clearest example of who the Messiah is supposed to be and that he's supposed to suffer in all of Scripture, right? Other than when he actually does it, right? So he's reading Isaiah 53, but remember, what is Isaiah 53 about, right? Now we all know, um, and I can just read you the part he was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he didn't open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life would be taken from him on earth, right? And we all know later that it'll say, by his stripes, we are healed, right? By the scourges, we're let in, right? I mean, that's the, he's reading this. He's saying, is he talking about himself? Maybe he's talking about me. Maybe he's talking about somebody else, right? He's trying to figure it out. Now, it's funny that Judaism asks the same question. Is Isaiah 53 about the Messiah or is it about Israel? Maybe because Israel gets persecuted. Maybe it's about us. Maybe it's not about the Messiah. Um, and what you find is Yeshua says, I am the representative. The Messiah was always supposed to be the representative of Israel because he is the true high priest. Remember, I was showing the, the, the uh, Aviva on the breastplate. We have 12. I said, count how many stones there are on the breastplate. She said 12. I said, what are the 12 for? And then by that time, we were distracted. But the the 12 people on the breastplate, remember, that was the priest wore the, they represented all of Israel. They had the 12 tribes on their chest. And this, and the, they had to listen to God and represent Israel once a year. And here we have a high priest who's going to represent Israel. And that's what Isaiah 53 said he's going to do. He's going to die for our sins. He's going to be persecuted. And the Egyptian, I mean, the Ethiopian can relate to that. You know, he opens his mouth, but nobody hears. He's humiliated because there's no justice for him. I'm sure the Ethiopian knows all about that, right? So he knows he's relating to this person. He's saying, who is he supposed to be? And the eunuch asks Philip, tell me, please, who this prophet is talking about, himself or someone else? And that's the same question that our people ask. Is this about himself or someone else? And the answer is, it's about someone else. It's not just about Israel. It's about the person who represents Israel, who will set not only Israel, but all the world free. Remember, Yeshua said that I'm here to let loose the people who had lost something in the Jubilee, right? He's restoring the Jubilee year, right? Those who were captives are set free. Those who need to be healed will be healed. So you literally have somebody who has his future taken away from him, literally, right? No future, no children. There's no future for him. When his job is done, he's done. He's not allowed in the room. He, If he wants to go to seminary, he's got to sit in the hallway. And Philip comes running up to him on the side of his chariot. Can you imagine? This guy's on his way to Jerusalem. He's thinking, well, when we get there, I really want to worship God, but I'm going to have to go sit in my section. And a Jewish guy starts running next to the chariot and says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? I mean, can you imagine that, that, what, what he must have felt like? Like, oh, first of all, I mean, this might be the first time he's ever actually talked to a Jew, right? Not only that, the Jew's running next to him. What do you think he felt like in terms of how does God think about me if God, by his Holy Spirit, because I'm sure uh, Philip tells him, by his Holy Spirit, he sent a Jewish person to run alongside me on the way to Jerusalem to explain Scripture for the first time, and he's hit right on Isaiah 53. All about healing, all about God setting the captives free, all about who the Messiah is supposed to be, and all about how those who are out are now in. And who's telling him? Someone who's been kicked out of Jerusalem, who can't even go to Jerusalem, right? And he's running alongside me. Can you imagine? I mean, I don't know if you've had this happen to you, but like you're saying, I, this is, I don't know how this is going to work out. Um, this happened with my nephew Luke. You know, we're, he's in the hospital and hospitals are weird sometimes. 
And there's this lady, she wanted to pray for him. And I thought, I mean, my mother-in-law was telling me about it. And she's not a believer, but she's got this weird ministry thing. I thought, no, that's wacky. Don't do that. That's weird. And we're thinking, are there any, you know, our prayer and the prayer meetings have been, could we have some conversation in our family about, um, about deliverance ministry and about, you know, angels and demons and about spiritual things and about taking authority over your family and how are we going to have this conversation? And, and I don't know that they're going to want to do this or not, you know, and we did not have that conversation. And I was watching the kids and everybody else went to the hospital. And I'm thinking, man, like, only thing I want to talk about is this one thing. Like, God, who are you going to send? Like, I thought you wanted to send me, right? And I'm going, I don't know. So they're just like in the hospital. What are we doing? We feel alone. We feel like nobody's going to do it. And the, the doctor pulls them aside and says, are you guys Christian? And they say, uh, yeah. She goes, I am too. And let me tell you how you're supposed to pray. She goes, you need to pray against this cancer. You need to declare it before the Lord that this cancer is not. I mean, it was amazing. She like led them through this entire thing. And I thought, that was not who I thought was going to do it, right? I did not even think that maybe the doctor will be a believer. It's always, my prayer for doctors is always, God, please give them wisdom even though they're not believers. That's always like generally my, but that's the thought. But then literally the doctor's pulling them aside and saying, if you want to learn how to pray, this is how you pray in this situation. And I've prayed with thousands of people, and this is how you do it. Pray out loud, pray declarative, pray against it, you know, pray God, you know, God's Holy Spirit over your son. I mean, it was like amazing. Right? And I'm thinking, wow, God can do, He can send anybody anywhere. And here you have Philip literally running alongside the chariot going, Hey, do you want someone to explain that to you? Can you imagine? He was like, what? How could this even be? Someone's going to say, yes, get in my chariot, explain it to me. And not only that, you didn't even know the Messiah has come and he died for your sins. And the things that Isaiah said he was going to do, he just did. And let me just tell you, on your way to Jerusalem, you may not have heard that Yeshua has come that he died for your sins, that he did, he was led to the slaughter, and he didn't, um, he didn't make a noise, he didn't complain, and no bones were broken, just like Isaiah said, right? And by his stripes you are healed. You are now allowed in. Where you thought you weren't, now you're allowed in, right? Can you imagine? So he says, tell me, and then as they traveled the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch says, look, here's some water. Why can't I be baptized, right? I mean, can you imagine? This guy already knows scripture. He's already reading scripture. He knows that if you ever get in, you can be cleansed. Baptism is not just about becoming part of the group. It's about being cleansed. That's why God created the mikvah. That's the whole idea is you cleanse yourself. So he recognizes, wait a minute, if you're saying I'm in, ho, 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 I know. Can I be baptized? Right? Because before, they would never let him in the mikvah. If he showed up to a mikvah, they'd say, sorry, buddy, eunuchs, you know, we know you're Ethiopian and eunuch. You can't go through this mikvah. This is for Jewish people, right? That's why today when you go to the Western Wall, they'll say, are you Jewish or not? And they want to know because they want to, they'll only pray with you if you're Jewish, right? But now you have this Ethiopian eunuch. He knows the next thing. He says, oh, does, if you're saying that the gospel is true, that by his stripes I'm healed, does that mean I can be cleansed? Yes, you can. Yes, you can be cleansed of anything, from anywhere, anybody, right? So the gospel literally goes from Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth, right? And it says that they, when he, he baptized and he says he gave the orders to stop the chariot, both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water. Philip baptizes him. And when he came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. So boom, right? That's the thing he wanted Philip to know, is you can go anywhere, and if you listen to my Spirit, anybody can be in here, right? Even the people who were out before are allowed in. There's no boundaries that God won't cross to come save you. It, and all you have to do is turn around, and he's always there. And here we have Philip literally is caught away. The eunuch didn't even see him again. But he went on his way rejoicing. 
right? So notice now we have the bookmark. You have joy in Samaria and you have joy to the ends of the earth, right? That's why on Christmas we sing joy to the world. That's where it comes from. Is this idea that it's supposed to cause joy and peace. That's the goal here. That Yeshua literally lowered himself lower than the angels so that he could be the ultimate sacrifice, just like the prophet Isaiah said he would be, so that he could set you free. And by his stripes you are healed. And whatever set you outside the camp now long, no longer is in your way. There is no wall. There is nothing that can stop the love of God from bringing you into his community. That's how it works. And the U- Ethiopian eunuch figures it out. Philip encounters it. Um, and it says, Philip, however, appeared at uh, uh, Azotus, which is actually Ashdod. So if you look at Ashdod, is straight across from Jerusalem. So if you look at the map, if you look at Jerusalem and you go straight west, see Ashdod right there? That's the same city. So literally, he goes from Gaza, and all of a sudden, he's in Ashdod. So he literally somehow flies or warps or whatever the Holy Spirit did to him, but he's there. He's, I mean, miles away. Um, and then he continues to teach all the way to Caesarea, which means literally he walked from Ashdod all the way up the road past Tel Aviv, all the way up to Caesarea. And everywhere he went, he did the same thing. Because, I mean, you gotta remember, what did, what did, you know, who are you in this story? Are you someone who's been left out of the group and God's saying you're allowed in? Or are you a person who's already in the group and has to be taught that you can go anywhere? That you should go anywhere? That you can just walk down the street and wherever you are, there you are. Whether it's someone on a plane, whether it's someone in a hospital, whether it's someone anywhere, can the gospel be spread at any time, at any moment to anyone? And the answer is yes, that's always been the plan from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So I'm sitting in the hospital, this guy's yelling, and I said to him, I know how it feels to wake up in a car. I've done that before, not know where I was. I've, I've made some really stupid mistakes like that. And the Lord gave me verses like I've never had before in my life. I can't even tell you what they are now. I mean, I, the pages flipped on their own. And I opened up to a verse and I said, this is what God's plan is for your life. And this is what his intention is for, for what it means to be drunk all the time. And he literally took it out of my hands. I mean, I felt like just like the Ethiopian eunuch. He says to me, let me see that. And he starts reading it out loud in the, in the, in the room. I mean, out in the middle of the, of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the emergency room, which by the way, it was packed. So there's hours there. So he just starts reading the Bible out loud to everybody. And he goes, I didn't know this was for me. Where I, where I'm, he goes, you don't understand what I was going to do today. He goes, on my way here, I call, I was going to kill myself. And I, and when somebody called the police, I planned that when they put me in my room, when they, when we were done with the, when they put me wherever room was, I would take whatever was in that room and I would kill myself. He goes, but now I'm not going to do that. He goes, do you know, my sister's a Christian and she's always telling me this and I never understood. He goes, maybe I'm going to give her a call. So he went into the room and instead of killing himself, he called his sister. And in this, I mean, it's amazing that the Holy Spirit does this, right? A little Jewish guy came up running next to him and said, do you understand this? And he says, now I do for the first time. And that's what we're doing. We're literally saying, do you understand this? Do you understand who this person is? That's why we hand out things when we say Isaiah 53 is important. Because Isaiah 53 is about the Messiah and it is about a suffering servant. And it has meant something to me. And this little Jewish guy will come running up to whoever wants to hear it, whether on a plane or not which often it's usually on a plane, especially if Heather prays. Someone will ask me a question, and you answer them with, yeah, I'm Jewish, and I believe in the Messiah, and he set me free. And no matter where you're from, he wants to include you too. That's the story here, right? That's what the apostles are doing. So from this point on, they're going to include everybody. So just in case you don't understand this, right, just in case you don't get that it's really for everyone, the next story 
is the guy who was murdering everybody comes to the Lord. Right? So you start off with Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, half Jews, not Jews at all, eunuchs, those guys are now in, everybody's in. Even the guy who murdered us. Right? I mean, look at that thing. And then they still struggle. Peter still struggles, which is the next story, with, are you sure Gentiles? And the answer is yes. It's always been this way. My house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. God is not so much concerned with where you've been. He's concerned with where you're going. That's why they're always on a road. right? That's why they're always on their way somewhere. If you're on your way to Jerusalem, God will show up and send somebody to explain to you what this means. And those people are us. That's what our role is here. That's what we're supposed to be accomplishing. That's what God wants us to do. He's not asking you to do something that's so uncomfortable that you can't just talk to whoever you meet. You know, I've told you the story before of the guy that came to the Lord. He was already a believer, according to his uncle, but he accepted the Lord while we were praying. And the next day he said to me, I was in the, I don't know what happened, but I was in the mall and I I felt like I could just tell everybody about God. What changed? And I said, well, the difference is yesterday you didn't know God and now you do. If you know God, it's it's easy. Now, I know it's uncomfortable because you think people are going to be mad at you or they're going to say something to you. But if you're aware of, if you wake up in the morning and you say, um, what do you have for me today, Lord? He'll probably tell you, there's somebody I want you to explain this to. Somebody that you're going to bump into and they're going to ask you a question. Um, and that, And you never know who they are and where they're from or what they've been through. And you'll know from these stories that God will work with anybody. People who have baggage, people who have problems, people who are eunuchs, even murderers, right? If if God sees light, he'll respond to the light, according to Paul. And how does Paul know that? Because he was in darkness. And he responded to a little bit, to somebody knocking off his horse. And from that day on, he would go anywhere. And he did. And he took the most, the, the best Jew of everyone and sent him to the Gentiles. Go figure. And he took the worst of the Jews and left them in Jerusalem. I mean... It's amazing what God will do through His Spirit for His people. And that's why these stories go together. That's why there's joy on both ends. But the story here is, literally you answer the question, tell me, is this about Himself? Who is the prophet talking about? Right? I mean, that's really what we're trying to do. So when we open Isaiah to people and we open it, all we're trying to say to them is, who do you think this is about? And what you find is people who haven't read the Scriptures um, usually think, especially if they've never read it before, think you're reading from the New Testament. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to a Jewish person and you read them Isaiah and they say, give me something from my Bible. And you go, this is your Bible. Well, I don't know. And then they read it and you say, read it for yourself. And if you hand it to them and they read it, they always go, uh, I need to ask my rabbi about this. And the question is, is he talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else? Is he talking about Israel or is he talking about the Messiah? And the answer is he's talking about the Messiah. And if he's changed your life and let you in the door, if he said for you that you were outside and now you can come in, then all you're telling people is come on in, right? All you're saying is, look, I'm on a journey, you're on a journey, and we've all been outside, and all he wants us to do is get clean. So that man, you know, didn't kill himself, and I never saw him again. You know, I felt a little bit like Philip here, like I have no idea where this guy is. Um, but I do know that that day he encountered the Lord, and it changed his relationship with his family. It changed, and all he had to do was explain one thing to him and hand him the Bible. And everything changed. Um, it's not as hard as you think it is. It, it's only scary until you try it. In fact, if you want, go with Jeremiah. He'll bring you on the street and you can actually walk on the road with somebody. Um, it's worth doing those things because what you'll find is, is you'll be surprised with what people actually say and what people actually are thinking about and what they're really concerned with. Um, God has a connection with every single person that you can connect with 
that you can find a way to encounter them where they're at and lead them out of darkness into the light. Amen? If today is the first day that you've heard this and you've never, you've thought that you have been um, excluded, um, then make this the day that you're included. Get excited because today is the day that you're allowed in. Um, if you haven't accepted the Lord before or you have thought you've accepted the Lord but the Holy Spirit has never done anything, well then t- make today your day. right? If whatever baggage you've had that's removed you from the Spirit, then let Him do that for you. Uh, so I'm going to pray. Uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll sing one more song and then we'll do, uh, the Lord's table together. And what the Lord's table is, is a remembrance of what God's done. So, and what He's going to do. And when we share it together, we remember that we all used to be on the out and now we're all in. And that our goal is to get more cups and more bread for more people, right? We want more people to be a part of that, to be a part of the group. Um, not because we're trying to build a club, but because We've recognized where we came from and where we're going. Amen. So let me, let me pray. And if you, if, uh, if you haven't accepted the Lord, follow me in this prayer. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and that I have things in my life that have held me back. Some things were my own sin. Some things were other people's sin. And I haven't felt like I could be in your presence. So Lord, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I recognize that belief in you is the only way to have true eternal, uh, salvation through you. Yeshua. There's no other way to find, to get to the Father. There's no other way to, to heaven. There's no other way to the promises that you have except through your sacrifice. So I accept it. I ask that the blood of your sacrifice, um, be sprinkled on me as well. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you let me in and I accept you as my Lord and Savior in Yeshua's name. Talk Radio's red-headed stepchild, Solace Radio. We go where no talk radio has gone before. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Find the Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach. Find the truth on Solace Radio. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 1. And I just want to say I really appreciated Greg and Kristen coming and leading worship this morning with our worship team. And our dancers, they were really spectacular sport, weren't they? And uh, Teresa, it was wonderful seeing you up there. Thank you for joining in. And Gail, and where were you? Second Samuel, chapter 1. We want to continue on in the study of the life of David, the lessons that we learn from this incredible character in Scripture and this great person. We've been focusing on a particular theme associated with David, which is that he is a person after God's own heart. So I ask you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1. You can put your finger in there, but this phrase comes up at least three times in reference to David. Two that are very specific, one that is certainly relevant to that. So while your finger is in 2 Samuel, look at 1 Samuel, and we're turning to chapter 13. And of course, in 1 Samuel, the life of David is. Uh, begins. He's anointed as king or as to be king by Samuel the prophet. Of course, he doesn't ascend to the throne just yet. Saul is king, but Saul oftentimes is not doing what God has called him to do. And on one occasion, the Lord tells Samuel, uh, tells Saul through Samuel 
that he is to wait. In order, before going into battle against the Philistines, he is to wait until Samuel would come in order to offer the offering that's to be offered. And so in chapter 13, we're told that because he doesn't do this, the kingdom is taken from him. And it says in verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not come. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. In this entire section, the word command comes up over and over and over again. Because a person after the heart of God, as we see here, is a person who is responsive to God's command and obeys him. And so here, Saul was disobedient. And now the Lord says he has sought after a man who has a heart that is after God, who will obey him. Now, what's interesting, uh, if you keep your finger in 2 Samuel, turn over to the book of Acts. If you look at Acts chapter 13, it's there that we read of Paul's very first message on his first journey as he is sent out by the congregation at Syria, Antioch, that is Antioch in Syria. He is sent out from that congregation, along with Barnabas and John Mark. They make their way from the coastal area of Syria, and they sail to the island of Cyprus. They go from port to port around Cyprus, and then they head north into what is Asia Minor, today Turkey. At that point, John Mark leaves both Paul and Barnabas, and Paul and Barnabas travel north into Asia Minor, into modern-day Turkey, and they come to an, a town or a village known as Antioch of Pisidia. So there's more than one Antioch, one in Syria, from which they were sent, and one in Pisidia, which is a region in Asia Minor. When Paul comes into Pisidia, he goes to, as his common, common occurrences, to go to the Jewish people, and he goes into a synagogue, and he begins to proclaim the good news. In fact, he's invited to do so. We wish that would happen today, right? But not as common as it might have been back then. Because Paul is encouraged. In fact, the elders in the synagogue say, Brothers, if you have any word, talking to Paul and Barnabas, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stands up. He motions with his hand. He said, Men of Israel and you who fear God. He's talking to Jews and proselytes. Listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great. And he gives us basically a synopsis, an early history of the Jewish people. He's basically doing what Stephen had done back in Acts chapter 7. You remember Paul was there holding the coats of those who were about to stone Stephen because of his message. He's giving a very similar message. So Stephen's message must have had a direct impact on Paul because he's telling the very same similar story. And now as we get on into his message, he talks about the Jewish people coming out of Abraham. He talks about the Jewish people being in Egypt, coming out of Egypt. He talks about the Jewish people wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, verse 18. He talks about the Jewish people 
uh, coming into the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. And then in verse 20, he says this, All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So a person after God's own heart is, in the words of Samuel, obeying his commands, in the words of Paul, doing the will of God. Now what's also interesting about this phrase, if you look now, if you turn into the Psalms, and if you look at Psalm 78, this is a Psalm of Asaph. He too gives us a synopsis of the history of Israel, but he ends with David. By the way, in Paul's message, it's very interesting, when he comes to David, the next thing he then starts telling the people in the synagogue is that David was a prototype of the Messiah, that the greater son of David, Yeshua, the Messiah of Israel, is what Paul was wanting to point toward. He used David as a jumping off point to speak about Messiah, because Messiah is the one who, in every respect, has a heart for God who does everything God commands, everything God will. When you get to Psalm 78, when Asaph concludes basic synopsis of the history of the Jewish people, this is how he ends it. He says, He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfold. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. There it is again. The heart of David is what God was looking at. Not so much his abilities, his talents, his skills, his heart, his character. Samuel says that's the kind of person God is looking for. Paul tells us that is exactly the kind of person Yeshua was and is. Asaph is telling us this is the kind of man God looks for. This is the kind of individual God looks for in serving him. Now, what's interesting about this passage in Psalm 78 is that I had you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1. That's approximately the midpoint of David's life. As I said before, more is written about David than any other character in Scripture. David's life takes up the entire book of 2 Samuel. His death is recorded in the beginning of of the book of Kings. And his call to ministry occurs midway through the book of 1 Samuel. That's a lot of material, a lot of time and space devoted to David. We're about the halfway point. David, the section we're going to read, or the first five chapters, I want us just to gloss over and take in summary. David's about 30 years old there. He'll live to be 73. And he'll reign from Jerusalem from 40 until 70, about 30 years in Jerusalem. His life basically as a king from the time that he is 30 until his death, the first 20 years of his reign are great years in his life. When he turns 50, things start going downhill in the life of David. And I would say David really dies a broken, disheartened man. Although he has a great psalm at the end of his, near the end of his life. But he endures some very heartbreaking moments toward the tail end 
especially because of his own family, as they rebel against him. Of course, it's not all their fault. David was not the best family man or the best father to his children. We're going to see that. But at this point, things are good for David. So we don't want to go down that road. But right now, things are pretty good for him. And we're about the midway point. Now, if you look at Psalm 78, these last few verses, they, they in a way, summarize David's uh, life. Because number one, in verse 70 of Psalm 78, he chose David his servant. And that reminds us of when Samuel went to Jesse and all of Jesse's sons were paraded before Samuel and Samuel chooses and God chooses David to be that servant of his. That's sort of encapsulated in the very first phrase. He chose David his servant and he took him from the sheepfold. That almost reminds me of when David leaves the sheep, goes into battle and fights with Goliath. He takes him from the sheepfold. And now David, from that time or shortly thereafter, no longer is going to be a shepherd of sheep. He'll begin to become a shepherd of people. But then the third line says, he took him from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people. He begins the shepherding process while he's running from Saul. Because you remember, when he ran from Saul, there were some 600 men and women and their families that came with David, didn't come with David, but met up with David while he was fleeing from Saul in the wilderness. And during that time of running, he begins to learn how it is to shepherd some of the people of Israel. And he will be on the run from Saul for some, let's say, um, 17 years or 13 years. He's anointed as king probably when he's around 17. He's anointed as king in Hebron when he's 30. So he's going to be running from Saul for 13 years. And during that time, he's learning how to shepherd the flock. He's learning how to trust God. He's learning how to be a shepherd of people. And so when we look at Psalm 78, we see that he chose David when he was just 17. He took him from the sheepfolds and following the nursing ewes, and he slew Goliath. He then brings him into Saul's uh, domain and becomes his personal musician. And then he flees from Saul for some 13 years to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. And then when he's finally anointed for the third time as king over Israel with an upright heart, he shepherded them, he guided them with his skillful hand. So what happens with David is at 17, he's anointed by Saul. Uh, excuse me, by Samuel. <clears throat> when he's thir- 30, he's anointed in Hebron to be king over Judah. And then when he's 40, he's anointed to be king over the United Kingdom of Israel, of Judah and Israel. And thus he starts his kingdom reign. Now, what is it that enabled David to transition from this running to a place of reigning? Second Samuel opens with the death of Saul. It's interesting how often the books of the Bible open with the death of God's leaders. Joshua opens with the death of Moses. Here we read of the death of Saul. First Kings is going to open with the death of David. Life moves on through these transitions. Things end and then new things begin. And so in 2 Samuel, we have an ending and a beginning. We read of Saul's death, and his death was a tragic one. 
He was in battle against the Philistines. He and his sons are on Mount Gilboa. The enemy is attacking, and the Israelites are forced to flee from the battlefield. Saul and his sons on Mount Gilboa are facing the enemy as they are coming up the hill. Saul is gravely wounded. He's going to die. He says to his armor bearer to slay him so that his body would not be taken by or he wouldn't be killed by the Philistines and then dishonored. His armor bearer would not raise his hand against God's anointed. And so Saul falls on his own sword. His armor bearer does likewise. And all his sons are killed around him. So David doesn't know of what has transpired. Second Samuel opens. David is in the south near in Hebron. He doesn't know what's happening north in Mount Gilboa. Mount Gilboa is by the Jezreel Valley. That's all the way by Galilee, all the way by the Sea of Galilee. David is down in Hebron, south of Jerusalem, near Beersheba in the desert. He hasn't heard yet what's transpired. And so in 2 Samuel, what happens is an Amalekite comes into David's sphere, comes into his court. An Amalekite is not generally welcomed among the Jewish people. Remember when the Israelites came out of Egypt, it was the Amalekites that had attacked Israel. They were the first ones to attack the Jewish people. And God said that he would wage war with the Amalekites from generation to generation until they are no more. And so here's this Amalekite, and he comes into David's presence. He figures David is going to reward him because he's going to tell David what has happened to Saul and his son. And he's able to prove it, Saul's crown and Saul's arm band, probably something that hung, that was around his uh, bicep. And so he has these two articles. And so he comes and he tells David what has transpired. But he changes the story. He tells David that he was on the scene when Saul was dying. He was not. We know that from 1 Samuel. But this Amalekite is lying to David. He's lying to him because he thinks that if he's the one that had killed Saul, David would rejoice over this because Saul was seeking to kill David. So he figures if I tell him I killed him, David is going to be pleased with me. And I can prove it because I have the crown and I have his armband. So he comes into David and he says, look, Saul is dead and his sons have died. David asks, how did this happen? And he says, the Philistines attacked and he was wounded and he called out to me. And he said, since I'm about to die, strike me down. So I obeyed him. I did what he had asked. And I killed the king of Israel. And here's his crown and here's his armband. David is distraught over what he has just heard. And David goes into mourning. And he's weeping and he's crying. And he fasts the entire day. I suppose the Amalekite was left to himself to reflect on what had just transpired. But at the end of the day, when the fast is over, David comes back to that Amalekite. He asks him again, what happened? And again, he tells him that he had killed Saul and he has his crown and he has his armband. And David says, how is it that you would raise your hand against God's anointed? By your own testimony, you deserve to die. And so he called his men alongside of him 
told him to kill this Amalekite, and the Amalekite is, uh, his life is ended. It's rather ironic that Saul, who is to kill the last Amalekite, fails to kill the last Amalekite, and here an Amalekite claims to have killed Saul, and the result is his own death in return. So here's something that strikes me about all of, all of this. And that is when transitions occur, and in the book of Ecclesiastes, by the way, in chapter 3, that great passage, it says, you know, uh, there is a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time uh, to weep and a time to laugh, and talks about all different eras in our lives. None of us lives a life that's a dance. None of us lives a life that's a laugh. All of us live lives that are a blend of all of these different aspects that come into our lives because of various occurrences and various uh, experiences. And so here is David. And the first thing that I notice about David is he's able to mourn the loss of things in the past. And while he may mourn the loss of things in the past, he doesn't live in that state of mourning. It occurs for a time, but then he moves on because there is a future that God has for him and the people of Israel. David writes one of the most beautiful laments as he reflects on Saul and Saul's sons, but particularly Jonathan, David's close friend. Take a look at this. Look at verse 19. That's where the song starts. And there's a phrase that comes up three times in this song. In verse 19, how the mighty have fallen. Look at verse 25, how the mighty have fallen. And look at verse 27, how the mighty have fallen. Three times he makes reference to the might, the significance, the influence of Saul and his sons, Jonathan particularly, but yet they have been slain. Now look at this lament. This is beautiful, really, in the way that it's crafted. He says, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. He's talking about Saul, and he's talking about Jonathan. They are his, their glory. He says in verse 20, don't tell it in Gath or in Ashkelon, chief cities of the Philistines who had killed these men, so that there is no rejoicing over their fall. And of course, Gath and Ashkelon were two of the principal of the five cities. And Gath is the city from which Goliath had come. He says in verse 21, Mount Gilboa, where Saul was slain. He says, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields or offerings, so that there's no blessings. You know, what's really interesting is that when the Jewish people come into the land of Israel, they come between, they walk through this valley that is created by Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And what Moses has or commands to happen, which they follow suit in doing, is he divides up the Levites so that there's a group of Levites that are on Mount Ebal. And there's a group of Levites that are on Mount Gerizim. And as the people of Israel are coming into the land, they come between these two mountains. And the priests on Mount Ebal are pronouncing the cursings that God had pronounced through Moses in the Mosaic Law. Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. If you are disobedient, the Lord will bring judgment. And on the other side of Mount Gerizim, there were the priests that were pronouncing all the blessing. But if you obey, you'll eat the good of the land. What's interesting about these two mountains, if you go to Israel today, they're in the West Bank, they're in the area of Samaria. 
Mount Gerizim becomes the capital of the Samaritans or the, the center of the Samaritans. Back in 79, when I had a chance to visit Israel, I was able to go into that region and to see these two mountains and to walk between them. And when you look at them, Mount Gerizim is in such a geographical location and its terrain is such that it's filled with trees and bushes and it's all green. And Mount Ebal on the other side is a barren hill. It's rocky, it's sandy, it's sort of dusty. And the cursings were being pronounced from there and the blessings from Mount Gerizim. So as the people walked through, they not only heard both sides of the Mosaic Law, they could visualize it as they looked. The cursings will bring that, the blessings will bring this. And now as David laments the death of Saul and Jonathan and his sons, he says to Mount Gilboa, which is a very green, lush area, it's in the Jezreel Valley, he says, may you become like Mount Ebal was or is. May no dew or rain fall on you so that it is a place of remembrance, of judgment, of cursing, of bitterness, maybe is a better word, of mourning, because our king and his son were lost. He says in verse 22, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. In other words, they were mighty warriors who were killing and slaying their enemies. Of course, David may be overstating it. Remember when Saul would go out, the people would sing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. But Saul isn't thinking about that. I mean, David isn't thinking about that. He's just thinking about the grandeur of this king, and so he's presenting him in a fashion that may not be exactly true in every detail, but it's ideal. And so he's one that has slain those. In verse 23, he says, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely in life and death, they were not divided. Well, they were divided at one point. You remember Jonathan was supporting David, and Saul wanted to kill David. But David's putting all that aside. He's moving on and he's reflecting on these two men and he's presenting them in the most positive of ways. But in other words, when they were divided, that was an aberration. They more often than not were a united father and son. It's just really beautiful how he presents this. He says, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. He clothed you luxuriously in scarlet. He provided for you. And Israel grew under his leadership. He says, how mighty have fall, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. And then he focuses his attention on Jonathan, who was his closest friend. He says, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me and your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty had fallen. That's how close they were. But the first thing that strikes me about David is that he's able to mourn the past while being able to move forward in the future. And our lives are like that. I'm sure for every one of us, we can think of moments in the past that we would say, I wish it had never occurred. I wish I made a different decision. I wish that I had been in a different place. I wish I had different associates or whatever it might be. There is that looking back to a hard moment in our lives. And the question that we always have to ask ourselves is this, is number one, it's appropriate to mourn, but it's not appropriate to remain there. And so then we need to move on. Now, if you look at chapter two, 
It's interesting where David goes from this. Because in chapter 2 it says, And after this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up, David. And David said, To which shall I go? And he said to Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone within his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So that's the second time David is anointed as king. The first time by Samuel, back in 1 Samuel, but he never had a chance to reign. Now for the second time he's anointed, now in Hebron in the south, but he's king over Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, as it were. Now, look at this. He says in chapter 2, in looking at verse 11, it says, In the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So we know that he reigns here for some seven years before he's going to go move on to Jerusalem. And when we get to chapter 5, his time in Hebron ends. He takes the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusite. It becomes the capital of the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Israel and Judah united. And David is again anointed for the third time to be king over the entire people of Israel. So chapters 2 through 5 takes the span of some seven years or so. And it reads very quickly, but it's over a a fairly lengthy period of time. The second thing that strikes me about David with regard to transition is, not only does he mourn the past, but go on with the future, but secondly, he inquires of the Lord as to what the future is for him. So if you look at verse 1, it said that David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to any of these cities? I think it's significant that David is a man after God's own heart, And so what he does is what God leads him to do. We're not told here how David knows what God wants him to do. It just says God told him. Interestingly enough, Nathan the prophet is not introduced to us till chapter 6 or chapter 7. And there's an interesting passage there about Nathan when he's first introduced to us. Perhaps Nathan is the one that's telling David, yes, go up to the city of Hebron. But we're not told. But let me just digress for a moment with regard to Nathan. Nathan is very fascinating to me because when David first speaks with Nathan, David says to Nathan, I desire to build a house for God. I live in a palace. The Lord is in a tabernacle, a tent, a temporary dwelling place. He ought to have a permanent dwelling place, even as I have. And Nathan says to him, What you want to do is a good thing. Do everything in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, what's so interesting to me about that is because after Nathan goes home, God then speaks to Nathan. And he tells Nathan, David is not the one who's going to build my house. You go back to David and you tell him, you're not the one to build my house. It's going to be your son, Solomon. So what's interesting to me is the prophets, when they speak, do not always, unless we're told, speak under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, here's a case where David wants to do something. Nathan loves David, and he says to David, 
That's a great idea. Go with it. The Lord is with you. And then the Lord speaks to Nathan. Um, got it? A little off. A little wrong. You know, I do love David. I'm with them. I'm glad you encouraged them, but he's not going to build the house for me. And you know what's interesting about David? He doesn't say, what? Why can't I be the one to build the house? David accepts the word of God. There's the man after God's own heart. But what does he do? He prepares everything for Solomon, his son, so that everything's in place for Solomon to go forward with the building of what David would like to have done but wasn't able to do. So the human element, really important that we recognize this, because God doesn't necessarily speak to us today the way he spoke to David in 2 Samuel chapter 2. We don't have prophets who can be that are infallible, so that when they speak, they're speaking the word of God to us. You need to be very cautious and careful when you speak with people and say, what do you think I should do? What do you think God is leading me to do? Ultimately, it's you and God. And you have to take personal responsibility for the choices you make and the decisions you make. And therefore, you need to listen discerningly and carefully to what others tell you. There's only one thing that is infallible with respect to what God is telling us, and that's found here in the 66 books of the Bible. That is never wrong. You know, this is always right. And therefore, it's always what we should be obeying and doing. But the human element is there, and you need to be cognizant of it so that we are sensitive to what God wants and not merely what we might like or what others might like. As in the case of Nathan in this instance, it's also very typical in our own experiences as well. But what I find interesting here is that while David mourns the past, he's ready to inquire of God about the future. Should I go and do this? And God says you should. Where should I do it? Go to one of these cities, and that's where you go. And David is obedient. Now, there'll be times when David is not obedient. We're going to see his failings and weaknesses. They will come. But right now, we're finding David to be very faithful and responsive to what God says. Now, check this out. The th third thing that's interesting to me about um, about David is not only that he inquires of the Lord, but a third thing is, is that he is exceedingly patient for God to bring about what it is God will bring about. Because the next few chapters are about a civil war that breaks out between the household of David and the household of Saul. Because Saul has one son who is still around. And that's a man by the name of Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth. <laughs> it's a little tricky, a little tricky. Uh, and he is introduced to us in verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. So here's what's happening. You have, in the north, you have tribes that are loyal to Saul. Saul was from Benjamin. He first saved the people of Jabesh-Gilead, that's up in the north, and, the, and most of his battles were fought in the north. So the tribes in the north benefited by his defensive measures, so they're very loyal to Saul. And Saul's right-hand man was a man by the name of Abner. Now David is in conflict with the house of Saul, but he's not doing anything. He's not attacking him, he's just waiting in Hebron. And David's right-hand man is a man by the name of Joab. 
And David's right-hand man is loyal to Joab. Now, Abner is a bad man. He's Saul's right-hand man. He's the captain of his troops, but he has an ulterior motive. He wants to set up Saul's son, Ishbosheth, as king, as a puppet king, so that he can control him and and exert his power and influence over him. That's Abner's goal. He's looking to gain power and to do it through Ishbosheth, whom he can control. So what Abner does is he takes his troops and he moves them from the north south. When word is conveyed to Joab, David's right-hand man, that Abner's moving his troops south, Joab moves his troops north. They meet at a place called Gibeah, which is not far from Jerusalem. So they've come pretty far south because Hebron is just south of Jerusalem. And Abner and Joab are talking. And they're sitting around this uh, huge, uh, it's not a well, it's really like where grain was stored. I've had a chance to visit it back when, in the 70s when I had visited Israel. And you can go to that very spot and you can see this grain storage area that has been uncovered. And the text says that Joab and Abner chose 12 young, powerful soldiers to fight against each other at that very spot. The text tells us that as they engaged in this conflict, they grabbing each other, they grabbed their swords, and they slew each other. All 24 young men died at that conflict. That now causes the rest of the armies to wage war with one another. And Joab is victorious over Abner's men, Saul's men. In fact, Joab's only going to lose those 12 men. Joab is going to kill over 300 men under Abner. But one of Joab's brothers is in battle with him. Joab has two brothers, but one of them is with Joab. And this guy, his name is Asael. He was like a gazelle, it says. He was like really fleet of foot. He was really fast. And he was chasing after Abner. But Abner's a bigger man. He's a stronger man. He's a more powerful man. He's a more experienced fighter. And Abner turns around and yells at him, Hey, listen, are you really going to try to pursue me? And Joab's brother says, I'm coming after you. And Abner turns around and says, don't come after me. Why do we have to have more deaths here? And your brother's going to mourn your death. Don't come after me because I'll kill you. The brother says, I'm coming after you. Abner turns around, takes his spear, and kills him. And then he runs off. Joab and the others find their brother dead on the battlefield. They mourn him, and they vow they are going to get their revenge. In the meantime, David's in Hebron. He doesn't really know anything of these particular events. He's only desirous of having peace and uniting all the tribes of Israel once again. He's really diplomat. In fact, earlier what he has done is he wrote or he sent a messenger to the people of Jabesh Gilead in the north who were very loyal to Saul. They're the ones that had taken Saul's body when it was being abused by the Philistines and buried it along with their sons. They've been very loyal to Saul. David sends a messenger to them, and he says, look, I love Saul too. I'm loyal to him too. And let me tell you, I commend what you did for Saul, and you, may you be blessed, and I'll always bless you. And the men of Jabesh Gilead think, hey, David's not such a bad man. And so they're willing to unite with him. So within the ranks of Abner and Ishbosheth, there are some that love David. They're finding David to be a good man. Well, David's informed of this 
previous battle and the death of Joab's brother. Time goes on. Remember, I said seven years have occurred within these chapters. Time goes on, and Joab takes his men, and they go after a raiding party. You know, they're like a, a raiding group. And so they, they'll go out, and they'll destroy some foreign nations, and they'll loot and take some stuff and bring it back. Well, when Joab is gone, Abner comes to David, and he says to David, look, let's make a peace treaty. If you make a peace treaty with me, I'll get the rest of the tribes to unite around you. Abner's ulterior motive is the hope that David would give him a prominent position in the kingdom. And David says, fine, go tell the other tribal leaders that this is what we're going to do, and I'll wait for you to come, and we'll come together, and we'll unite the kingdom. Joab comes back from a raiding party, and he learns that David had made a pact with Abner. Joab is furious. He said, how can you do this? Don't you know this man is just here to take advantage of you? He's not interested in in you and establishing the kingdom. He's just looking at what he can get out of it. And so Joab sends some men out to go get Abner, who left just a few moments before. And he brings him back to Joab. Joab gets together with Abner. They go out for a walk. They're going to talk a little bit. In the midst of their conversation, Joab takes out his sword and he kills Abner. David is furious. All these deaths are happening around him. David is furious because he's trying to gain peace. And here there's conflict going on on the sideline of things. David pronounces a curse on Joab. Although Joab remains faithful to David and David accepts his loyalty. But he's very upset. And David mourns. Now the death of Abner, Saul's right-hand man. That leaves Ishbosheth the king, with no one around him, right? Abner is gone, and he was really taking care of him. And Ishbosheth was sort of a cowardish kind of person. And so he's really frightened, and he doesn't know what to do, and he doesn't know what David's going to do. But there are two men who led raiding parties under Abner. They go in to Ishbosheth at night, or in the afternoon while he's sleeping, and they kill him. And they cut off his head. And they take his head to David. And they say to David, we just slew the king who is, you know, seeking to take over the kingdom. And David is aghast. And he says, if I'm not going to allow someone who killed his father to live, how can you expect me to keep, to not, you know, not to command your death for killing Saul's son? And so he tells his soldiers to come, and these two men are slain. The enemies of Saul or those that were, or of David or those that might be uh, uh, in line for the throne are now exited. And when you turn to chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, it says in chapter 5, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. They said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, It was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. He would reign for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven years, six months. 
And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. So there's, that launches us now into the life of David as king over Israel. What strikes me here is transitions. We're getting ready for a transition. We're going to be transitioning to Tarzana. Get storage taken care of. Waiting to hear back from the pastor over there. They're supposed to be drawing up a lease, and that's what I'm really waiting for. But we have a transition. This congregation's history has been histories of transitions. Geographically, ministerially, personally, elders, congregants. There's been all kinds of transitions. I think the lessons that we learn here are good. I think they're good lessons. So lesson that number one, it's right to mourn the past. It's, lo- it's right to look at the past and say it's really sad, some things that have happened in our lives and in our congregational life. There have been sad things, and that's true of all churches, all ministries, because human beings are failures and have failings and weaknesses, and therefore we hurt one another. And so here you have a situation where there is hurt in Israel, and it's proper to mourn, but it's not proper to stay there. It's not proper to remain there. We now have to look forward like David and inquire of the Lord, where would you have us go? which is what I've been doing, the elders have been doing, and many of us have been praying about for the last few months when we first learned that the church here was not going to renew our lease come the end of March. So we've inquired of the Lord. Has the Lord spoken to us and said, this is where you are to go? No, I can't claim that. I can't claim that. But I can claim that a door is opened for us that is in a wonderful community, and the pastor there is wonderfully supportive of Beth Ariel and ministry among the Jewish people. And so we're going to walk through that door. And when we walk through that door, we'll just see how God is going to lead and direct and help us in our reestablishing of our ministry in that part of the valley. As you know, this congregation was established, first of all, on the 405 in Sunset at what was the Holiday Inn. You know, that, that strange, tall, circular, tubular building, you know. And then from there, they were in Brentwood, where they met at the Magnet School, I think it was called, Brentwood, around the corner from OJ. You know? I don't know if he ever came. Hope he might have come and hear the gospel. But not far from him, over in uh, Brentwood, that area. Then they were over in Sherman Oaks for, I guess, maybe about 13, 14, 15 years. That was a, that was a long stint there. Then we were over at Satakoy. I guess we were at Sadakoi since I've been there. That's about seven years plus three years before, nearly 10 years over there for almost two years. And now the wandering Messianic Jewish community uh, congregation, Beth Ariel, moves to the next spot. I suppose it's a blessing and a curse. You know, it's a curse. We've got to keep thinking where we're going. It's a blessing. We can go wherever we want. You know, there's freedom and movement, but there's something, a loss of stability and lacking, you know, a place. So it's a trade-off. But in any case, we mourn the past. We have some elders that are resigning. We've had uh, congregants, regular attenders, members that have come in and out of our sphere. Those are sad things. You know? But we inquire of the Lord. The Lord's opened the door. He's not closed the door. He's not said, close down shop. He says he's giving us the mo- to move forward. We inquire of the Lord, where would you have us go? Tarzana has opened its door. We go to Hebron. We go to Tarzana. That's where we're going. We inquire of the Lord what's happening in Valencia in the north. It's a real blessing what's happening there. You know, last Saturday we had 50 people out. 49, okay, but, you know, 50 people, uh, as well as, you know, a whole host of folks. And by the way, tonight we got Ted Pierce up there. 
So at six o'clock, if you're able to get up to Valencia, come and rejoice with us. You know, is the, we would have had him here. He was already booked. But they said, hey, he's good Saturday night. And, you know, in the past, it would be like, where, what do we do? Oh, we have another service, you know. So this is great. And if you're free and you can come up, come up and rejoice with what he'll be doing there. So we inquire of the Lord, you know. And, um, and so we, we want to move forward. We want it to be diplomatic like David was. We want to be diplomatic with our new neighbors. We certainly, it's just a wonderful community right behind this facility. So we'll go door to door with some information and say, hey, look, there's a new congregation right here. If you're looking for one, come and visit. This new property, three and a half acres, and there's like a ballpark in the back, you know? And there's all kinds of stuff for our kids. This is going to be a great place to really focus on uh, bringing young families and their kids because it's just great for them. And during the week, there's a preschool there. So all the classrooms are pristine. That may be tough for us to leave it that way. But we don't have to worry because we're there Saturday. The church is there Sunday. You know, so they have to make sure it's on there. No, we do too. We do too. But it's going to be, uh, I think it's going to be really wonderful what we'll be doing and how the Lord uh, will, will bless our efforts. And we need to be like David, patient. You know, David wasn't engaged in all of that craziness of bloodshed. He was just waiting in Hebron until the time was right for him to go up to Jerusalem, and the time was right for him to be anointed as the king of Israel. So we too, like him, need to be patient, and we need to allow God to bring about his ministry there as he's going to bring it about in his time and in his way. So that's what we want to pray about as we close. Okay, We want to pray for God's blessing, his mercy, and his grace toward us. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the ministry of Beth Ariel. We thank you for all of its leaders over the years. We thank you for Lewis, who planted this congregation and had the vision for it and put some 20-some-odd years of blood, sweat, tears, prayer, spiritual vigorousness uh, into the lives of these folks. Not a perfect man, a man who had failed in some respect, but a man forgiven by you and ought to be appreciated by all for the work that he has done. We thank you for the ministry he had as he served here for three years and continued the ministry going forward, and we bless you for him and for his presence here. Again, not a perfect man, a man that had uh, some uh, failings in terms of dealing with some of the folks here and some of the purposes. But Lord, we thank you for his work and for his leadership and for what contributions he has made in preaching and in teaching your word. We thank you for the elders that have been a part of this congregation over the decades. I don't even know all of them. But I know that there have been many and others here can remember them and remember their names. But I remember Bob and Jerry and Chris. And I thank you for Barry and for Chuck, for Carlton, for Andrew, and those folks that you have brought together to bring leadership to our congregation. And we thank you for their service and for their ministry. And we're grateful, Lord, for the investment that they made with their lives, with their hearts, and with their prayers and with their uh, spiritual gifts, and all of that, 
And we're thankful for it. And we look forward to what you have for us in the future and what ministry you have for Beth Ariel as we move to the next place and the next phase of ministry. May our hearts be in tune to yours. May we be a congregation that would be defined as having a heart for you. May we be a congregation that is always seeking you, making prayer a top priority, that your house here would be a house of prayer as we seek your will and your direction. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us patience, even as we are to wait upon the Lord, call upon his name, and to allow you to lead and to guide in your own way and in your own timing. Grant us the strength, the perseverance, the fortitude, the stamina to use our gifts and talents and abilities to build one another up, to reach out to the lost. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Find the Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach. Find the truth on Solace Radio.